listen to Patsy Cline in Canada? We listen to Patsy Cline everywhere. You hungry? I'll eat on the train. Sure. The little place up here makes a mean burger. How long have you known? A couple of days. I saw your picture in the post office. I guess they knew you were down under. Why? Rewards $23,000. I told you when I met you. I got a hell of a mortgage. If it makes you feel any better, it's a hard decision, Annie. My name's not Annie. It's the Lost Rewatch Podcast here on Post Show Recaps. Hello, everybody. I am Josh Wiggler. I am joined here by Mike Bloom. Blank slate, tabula rasa. Uh, we are wiping the slate clean as we head into our first uh, recap of a non-multi-part episode. And Lord, please, God, let it be under 108 minutes. I'm so excited to be here, Josh. I have a nice, fresh can of tab open on my desk. My browser is open with tabs of plenty about all the great research. Ready to get in to talk about Tabula... Damn it! I'm going <laughs> to get it one time. You'll get it. You'll get it. You'll get You'll get Tabula Rasa. I, I, have, I have faith in you. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, listen. You, you know what? I've spent years at this point podcasting um, improperly defining words. It only makes sense that I start improperly pronouncing words. Just my slow, slow descent into madness here. I'll end up like season six Claire true and soon enough on this podcast. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, we're, uh, we've got a long way to go here on the down the hatch podcast early days yet for Mike Bloom to be going slowly mad. But here we are talking about what is technically season one, episode three tabula rasa. The pilot counts as the first two episodes of the series so that is slightly confusing to some but that is the score season one episode three tabula rasa the first ever kate austin centric episode for those who are new to down the hatch welcome aboard this is a lost rewatch podcast it is a spoiler filled lost rewatch podcast where each week mike bloom and i we are discussing every single episode of lost by the numbers we have different sections that are numbers oriented we promise it will be a 42 minute podcast experience at the least 108 minutes at the most and if we exceed 108 minutes 
there will be consequences. We have yet to do an episode underneath 108 minutes uh, of the of these main podcasts. This is a small sample size, to be fair. Okay, let's not castigate, castigate ourselves too much. I know we like to do that, but uh, we should give ourselves a bit of proper credit. And someone did point out on social media that if you do technically cut the podcast in half, King Solomon style, we were talking about two episodes, and we did go under an hour 48 for each of the two parts. Okay, so I will take that as a win, and we lift that rule when it comes to multi-part episodes that we are recapping, so two-parters, even three-parters on the the rare occasion that we get to one of those, uh, the 108-minute rule is lifted, but it is in play today, and we are almost five minutes into the podcast, and we haven't started talking about it yet, so we got to start talking about it, otherwise we are in danger. If we go over 108 minutes on Tabula Rasa, we are in extreme danger, so that is not something that we are allowing uh, for ourselves today, but a couple of quick items of business right up front. First of all, if you have not done so yet, please subscribe to the Down the Hatch feed on your podcast app of choice, rate and reviews. We would love all of that from you. Uh, You have been especially kind as we've started getting off the ground here on Down the Hatch. Anything you can do to help us get noticed in the iTunes charts or whatever charts uh, that correspond to the way that you listen to podcasts, that is greatly appreciated by us. We have a feedback section that we will get into later on. You have been phenomenal with your feedback so far. uh, It was perfect for the pilot episode, and it continues to be that way for this week as well. If you do not know how to reach us, you can send us an email. Down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com is by far and away the best way to get your feedback onto the show. You can also hit us up on Twitter. Mike is at a Mike Bloom type. I am at Round Howard. Last week, Mike, we had a really wonderful spoiler song that reminded people that this is an this is indeed a spoilers podcast. If you've not watched all of Lost, this is not the podcast for you unless you do not care about spoilers. If you do not care about spoilers, you can hang tight here. Uh, but if you are watching for the first time and everything is precious to you, as it should be, go watch the series first, then come back here. Uh, we will not play the song. What we will do is tell you about a different show that you can watch if you <laughs> if you are afraid of the lost spoilers right now, that there is something else that is going to be coming to Amazon Originals uh, today, in fact, as you are listening to this podcast, as it is released on August 30th. And of course, Mike, I am talking about Carnival Row, which we talked about very briefly uh, in last week's episode. Tell me more about it then. I, I'm of a very short-term memory, so I forgot in the t- depths of that three-and-a-half-hour podcast three and a half what, hour what Carnival Row might be about. All right, so this is Carnival Row. It's a new Amazon original series that's coming to the streaming service on August 30th, which means it is available for you now. It's a one-hour fantasy drama series starring Orlando Bloom and Cara Delevingne. It's a series that is set in a Victorian fantasy world filled with mythological immigrant creatures whose exotic homelands were invaded by the empires of man. They struggle to coexist with humans, forbidden to to live, love, or fly with freedom. Orlando Bloom plays Rycroft Philostrate, also known as Philo, a police inspector investigating a string of gruesome murders threatening the uneasy peace of the row. Cara Delevingne plays Vignette Stonemoss, a fairy refugee who flees her war-torn homeland to come to the Berg, where she must contend not only with rampant human prejudice against her kind, but with the secrets that have followed her to this new land. But even in darkness, Mike Bloom, hope lives as this human detective and fairy rekindle their dangerous affair despite an increasingly intolerant society. So come together this August 30th, this Labor Day weekend, where Carnival Row is on Amazon Prime 
video, Mike, uh, starring Orlando Bloom, your cousin, as we had established the week before. Do you think uh, Phila would get along with Edward Mars in terms of them both being <laughs> on a certain side of the wall of the law? I don't like Edward Mars for the world of uh, Carnival Row. I feel like he would be very against uh, everybody with these mythological creatures. I don't I don't think that Edward Mars would be playing ball with these people. Yeah, I, I would say so. Maybe he fits in more on Veronica Mars. I think maybe more on Veronica Mars. Okay, that's it. Full Lost spoilers from here on out. We are going to get into it. As we do each week, we are going to start about talking four stories from this week's episode of Lost. We are talking about Tabula Rasa, not Tabula Rasa, though I love Tabula Rasa, and I kind of want to keep saying Tabula Rasa, if that's okay with you, Mike. Yeah, listen, we're such big Survivor fans, and considering how it's sort of become a mainstay in Fiji, I can imagine how much Tabula Risa we're about to talk about in terms <laughs> yes. of the cookery going on on the island. Yes, absolutely. This is directed by Jack Bender, who goes on to become one of the most, uh, I would say, the most prolific director of Lost, uh, supervising producer on the ground. He is, uh, he is essential to the success of Lost all the way through from this point. So great to have Jack Bender officially in the house here. Written by Damon Lindelof, a solo joint by uh, Damon Lindelof, co-creator of Lost and uh, one of the most identifiable names associated with Lost. This episode aired October 6th. 2004, and it focuses on one Kate Austin. Uh, and Mike Bloom, you were not yet watching Lost at this point. You were still two weeks away from your very first episode all the way back in 2004. And Josh, you were failing your astronomy class as you were watching this episode. <laughs> I passed. I, I shouldn't have, but I did. I <laughs> what, you're going to get like your degree revoked now? There's going to be some member of the Syracuse staff listening like, oh my God. And then you know like, what? Ronnie Dangerfield, you have to go back to school and finish your astronomy credits while you're recording the podcast. Everything comes back around, Josh. Much like Boone and Shannon and Rodney Dangerfield, I can't get no respect. Uh, but let's talk about Tabula Rasa. Let's start off. Uh, we always do four stories is how we kick these podcasts off. And story point number one, uh, as it was last week and shall be again this week, basically plot summary. Let's talk about the actual events. Let's describe what happens in the episode for the people who are listening along, but maybe not rewatching Lost on their own. And Tabula Rasa, it begins much like where we ended. Uh, the marshal who was in, in very bad shape, Mike, uh, the, the plan. The plane crash did not agree with uh, with the marshal, much as it has agreed uh, with anybody, uh, but really disagreed with him with the head wound and the shrapnel in his side. And he kind of woke up and was like a little bit alert at the end of the pilot, but he is a little more alert now. He's talking to Jack. He's, you know, Jack is like, oh, you're talking nonsense. Nothing that you're saying makes any kind of sense. But it turns out, Mike, it's not nonsense. The marshal has a picture of Kate, a Xerox copy of Kate Austin's mugshot in his jacket pocket on this really thin piece of paper. I I know that we don't have time to spend just chastising the marshal for having this totally bullshit piece of paper photocopy of Kate Austin's mugshot, but I just don't fully get it, Mike. I mean, listen, I don't know how many staples are readily available on the road back in the early 2000s for him to print out pieces of paper. He's probably kept this in his jacket for three years, so it's had wear and tear. I will say Kate's mugshot photo uh, on a scale of Nick Nolte to hot mugshot guy, definitely trending towards the latter. She's a beautiful woman, so even when she's you know at her lowest low, she still looks stunning in a photo. All right. So meanwhile, we we check we check back in on the hiking crew. Uh, the I, I like to who, call them Team Transceiver. 
Team Transceiver, the Transceiver Squad, uh, as they have just discovered the transmission from the French woman who we know is Danielle Russo, who's been broadcasting for 16 years, and everybody's kind of still processing that information. Uh, it's going to be dark soon. Sawyer wants to just get back home. I guess he's got some sort of hot date that we don't know about, but everyone's like, it's a little dark. We don't really want to be walking through the dark. Kate and Charlie especially know that that is not a good idea, so they decide to camp out. And during this camp out, Saeed Jarrah takes on Jack Shepard's role of doing prop comedy uh, and doing charades to reenact what we already know about the crash of Oceanic 815. I'm going to miss this, Mike. I don't know how, how much more of like, the, of like the shadow puppetry of the crash of Oceanic 815 we're going to get on the show. This may be the end of that era. Well, I think it's also interesting in that, you know, this was the first episode after the pilot, so there's a lot of reintroductions they have to do. Between this, we're going to get our first repeat flashback later on when the marshal's like, hey, Kate, remember when you said I should help you with something? And then they right. directly show it. So it's clear that, like, people who were really into the pilot or had heard about the pilot but didn't watch it, uh, they'd be able to sort of just... I mean, this is the first time we do a previously on Lost as well, which would become a staple of the franchise. But yeah, I will miss our little re-explanations of what happened to Oceanic Flight 815, though, considering all the time traveling and other you know, mind-blowing circumstances we're about to get into, I think explanations will still be fervent throughout the history of Lost. So around this campfire, everybody agrees that maybe we shouldn't tell everyone about the French chick that we just heard. Because uh, that's really like still like very scary news for us. And we're a relatively small sample size of the survivors of 815. Uh, so maybe let's just keep this in-house for now. And everybody agrees that they're going to lie. In fact, Kate even says, so we lie. Yes, as if something is completely new to her the entire time. Uh, yeah, she just acts like very like morally aggrieved. Like, we're going to lie about that? How? Oh, how, how dare we? tizzy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, something tells me that she is totally cool with the lying. We cut back to the camp and Hurley and Jack, uh, where they're, they're together. They're debating whether or not uh, the monster that they've heard, is it a giant dinosaur or something? Jack's like, no. It's not a dinosaur. There wasn't a dinosaur, uh, which I felt like was kind of like a meta comment to dissuade the theories that the monster is a dinosaur fairly early on uh, on the writer's behalf. Um, And in the tent, in the medical tent, uh, Hurley is going to find this very thin sheet of paper that has Kate's mugshot on it. And it leads us to a to a series of dudes from Hurley. It's going to it's going to ramp up the, the dude count that we are indeed still tracking. We'll update you later in the podcast. Uh, and Hurley, Hurley says about Kate, she looks pretty hardcore uh, in the mugshot. Jack's like, no, 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 no. Don't worry about that. Everything's going to be fine. Why did Jack leave this piece of paper around? <laughs> I guess he's just like, he's got a lot going on, right? Like he's got some PTSD of his own to work through. His dad just died. Now he's having to do island surgery. And this person that he is like having a little bit of a crush on is a fugitive from the law. It's just a lot to process. And I think uh, if, if he forgot to clean up the workstation a little bit, uh, perhaps he can be forgiven. Yeah, a, a tidy mind is a tidy workplace, and I think Jack just sort of has to realize that. I mean, he also is not Leader Jack as of yet, so maybe this is just something Dr. Jack would do instead of Mr. Live Together, Die Alone. All right, so back at Team Transceiver, uh, everybody's asleep, except for Boone. No rest for the wicked, as he is going to go and nick the gun off of Saeed, uh, who is in possession of, uh, or I think he's taking he's taking the clip from Saeed. Yeah, and the gun uh, and the gun from Kate. 
Right. And he's he's standing guard and everyone's like, hey, whoa, what are you doing? Just like stealing the gun in the middle of the night. You're a child and this is not OK. No one is happy about it. Uh, it gets everybody into a little bit of infighting again. Uh, this is where Sawyer uh, busts out a new nickname for Said. He calls him Al Jazeera, which leads to uh, one of my favorite lines from Charlie where he goes, Al Jazeera is a network. Like, it's not a person. You just can't call him that. Uh, yeah, listen, there are, there, there are no Snopes on the island. There's no fact-checking service. So I guess Charlie has to serve as that. And also, Al Jazeera apparently translates to the island. How about so everything that? just comes back to the island, Josh. Uh, everybody thinks that Kate should be the one to hold the gun. She's like, she's the most reliable person here. She's definitely never done anything dangerous before. She was very convincing when she uh, showed us that she didn't know how to disarm uh, this weapon. Uh, so she is definitely the person who should hold on to it. Kate's like, oh, you don't know, but I actually blew up my dad. <laughs> yes, but we're about to go into Annie hold my gun uh, yes. as Kate gets a gun cocked in her face as she gets handed one on the island. Yeah, so we go to our first flashback, and it's Kate at Ray Mullen's farm, which apparently should be known as a station, according to the Amazon what? trivia. Uh, I didn't I didn't know this, that farms are called stations in Australia. Oh, I thought this was like another Dharma station. I know that Jacob sort of had, you know, his eyes and ears out to track these candidates, no. <laughs> but to set up a Dharma station on old Ray Mullen's farm, do we call it like the emu or the kangaroo would be the Australian farm that took a watch on Kate? Yeah, they go back a ways, uh, Ray Mullen and Jacob. How do you think Ray Mullen lost his arm in the first place? I think he was arm wrestling Sylvester Stallone, and he just slammed (laughs) it right off. He just tore it right off. Uh, Ray Mullen is introduced to Kate, a.k.a. Annie. She lies about her identity here. She says she's Canadian, which, of course, is a nod to the fact that Evangeline Lilly is Canadian. Uh, And Ray says he needs some help. His wife died eight months ago. He needs some help around the station uh, and he needs a hand in a manner of speaking as we see that Ray Mullen does not have uh, two hands. He has he has the one, and then he's got uh, the prosthetic, and he has this awkward moment where he's like, I'm a, I'm a lefty, uh, when Kate tries to shake his hand. Uh, but Kate is Annie. She's going to stick around, and this seems like a good deal for the next eight months to lay low and cash, uh, cash in some checks. More amputees lost or Star Wars? Uh, I think ultimately Star Wars. Uh, just it's a vast galaxy. <laughs> That's true. A, a galaxy of amputees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I wonder if Ray Mullen has been traveling with Dr. Death. Uh, TBD. <laughs> TBD on that. All right, so the hike party returns. Jack and Kate meet up, and Jack is like, he's he's waiting for Kate to just like open up and just like own who she is and, and what she's all about. And he's very disappointed when she says, so I got to tell you something, top secret. Uh, and he's like, okay, what's the top secret thing? She's like, yeah, so there's a radio broadcast that's been happening for 16 years. Uh, and Jack's like, hmm, okay, that's crazy. Hey, anything else? Kate's like, anything else? Uh, but she checks it. She's like, how's the guy with the shrapnel? How's he doing? And Jack's like, um, you know, he's not doing great. Kate says, he said anything? Jack's like, oh, you're not going to tell me. Oh, this is not fun. Uh, he's not happy about that. He doesn't like being lied to. Should, he have, should she have taken a hint? Do you, I feel like when you have those conversations with whether it be your significant other or a close friend, when you hear anything else, that feels like the ultimate hint being dropped, right? Of like, I know something that I shouldn't know and you need to come clean about it. I think when Jack says that the marshal hasn't said anything, I think at that point, Kate probably figures she's in the clear. She's here on this island with a blank slate. Nobody knows that she's a fugitive. 
Uh, she's been on the run for so long that, you know, she's not going to be front of mind. People aren't thinking about uh, world famous fugitive Kate Austin at this point. No one's going to recognize her. She well, has well, famous celebrity. across two continents, at least. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, so I think that she thinks that she's okay, and she's certainly not gar- like banking on the fact that uh, that that Edward Mars has a Xerox photo of her mugshot in his pocket. Um, so I think that she thinks that she's in the clear. Yeah. Um, Jack is going to go on a mission to go into the fuselage because the meds that Hurley found it's not quite enough for what Jack needs to do with the marshal. So he's going to go and brave the D E A D B O D Y S in the fuselage, and in there. Jack and Sawyer are going to have their first real face-off, which is an awesome scene. We will play that in full in the eight-sound section for sure. Uh, Just excited to hear that again, frankly. Yeah, it's a fantastic, nice introduction to a character standoff that really is at the forefront of season one. I know we more so focus on Jack and Locke, especially as season two rolls on with Man of Science, Man of Faith. But when things were more small and interpersonal, I really do feel like season one was Jack versus Sawyer and the whole... Uh, civilization versus wild conversation. So in a flashback, we see Kate, I guess eight months have passed or enough time has passed that she is ready to hit the road. She's going into uh, the secret cubby at uh, at, at Ray's station. <laughs> yeah, yeah, full of jarred peaches and nothing else. Yeah, he's a big peach guy. Millions of peaches just for uh, Ray Do you Mullen. Think he could get, you think he could get the jar open, though? Uh, that would be tough. That maybe would be maybe tough. that's why he had to keep around. Like, you got to open jobs for eight months, Annie. <laughs> that's her job. That's her only job is to be his, his jarred peach lady. Oh, my God. Yeah, I think that that's a good theory. I think we can uh, we can put a nail in the coffin on that one. But he catches her. He's like, you better not be leaving with any of my peaches. <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> I spent but years she- jarring those things. <laughs> But she has, uh, she's just taking her money. She's going to go in the middle of the night. She's not so much for goodbyes uh, and races. Just spend the night, sleep easy. I'll drive you there in the morning. It'll be fine. And she says, all right. Uh, we flash back to the island. It's dumping rain, as is uh, want to happen here on Lost. People are collecting rain. People have tarps where they're collecting rainwater. Uh, this was Saeed's idea. Once again, Saeed proving that he is a super genius uh, in terms of leadership and survival. Uh, and during the downpour, Kate goes and visits the marshal. She's like looking over him, like really lurking over his body. And when he lurches awake, his first reaction is to just choke the living daylights out of Kate for a little while. Yeah, I mean, adrenaline Very is at an, at an all-time high. And I guess it makes sense. You know, he was so focused. Everything he said was, where is she? She's dangerous. And like, it's odd for him to assume that she's alive concerning the disastrous plane crash they got into. But I mean, this is his prize. His prize is right out in front of him. She has, has evaded him many times before. And now he feels like he finally has, Elmer Fudd has finally found Bugs Bunny. And he's going to choke Bugs Bunny out until he's not eating carrots anymore. Yeah, but here comes Jack and he breaks it up. And we get, we get a, another really great scene. We'll play in the eight sound section where Jack and Kate have their confrontation in the rain. And it's a scene like that where I, I watched that again. And I was like, I can't believe that this is Evangeline Lilly's first major acting job. She's so excellent. Yeah, uh, she's just fantastic. I watched it multiple times because there was some slow mo choices that I was very confused about and thought my Hulu was malfunctioning. Yeah, uh, there's some weird like uh, Lost shows its age a little bit in some of these early episodes. That's one instance. I also noticed that there was like a stray piece of hair in the camera <laughs> lens uh, in the scene inside the tent as Jack is trying to break things up between the Marshall and Kate. So what are you gonna do? Uh, we flash back again. 
Uh, and we we get the scene that you heard at the top of this podcast. We find out that Ray has basically sold Kate down the river for twenty three thousand. It's a heck of a mortgage he's got to pay off. Uh, and the marshal is like he's like driving behind them on the road, and he pulls up next to her and does like this finger gun thing at Kate, which I always thought was pretty uncool of him. Also uh, weird that he used his left hand instead of his right, considering that's the direction he was facing. Maybe he is also a lefty, like Ray Mullen. <laughs> That could be the case. Uh, eventually, he's going to end up capturing Kate the Marshal because uh, they they all like run each other off the road because it's a very dangerous thing. Kate like tries to uh, pull over so that yes. she can escape. Fury the Road, if you will, considering the location. Yeah, exactly. And as she's getting out of the truck in the crashed truck, she she pulls Ray out because the vehicle's on fire and it's maybe it's going to explode. And I think she's seen enough father figures at this point die in fiery explosions for one lifetime. So she pulls him out, but pulling him out leads to her capture at the hands of the marshal. Yes, we'll put a pin in that, uh, a prosthetic arm in that, if you will, and we'll talk about that later on. Maybe she just felt like Ray had so many, he's got so many peaches at home, he can't die like this. Yes, yeah, he need, that. those peaches will just go uneaten if he dies here. Uh, and that would just be a, a, a level of food waste that Kate Austin would not be able to abide. Um, in the present, uh, the marshal's just like howling in agony and everyone is freaking out. Uh, you, you get this moment where you see Locke. He's just like very calmly whittling a whistle. Uh, Charlie ends up sitting next to him, uh, I, which I enjoy because we're going to find out in a couple episodes that like Locke is one of the only people on the island that actually does recognize Charlie. Like, I was a big drive shaft guy. Uh, so I, I, I always love when those two characters are together, especially in season one. Um, but during this moment, that's when Saeed's going to come up to Jack. He's like, hey, so the Marshall, something going to happen there? Jack's like, I'm trying to save him, trying to, trying to save his life. And Saeed says, rumor has it you can't. Uh, and I really spent a long time trying to isolate the audio of Saeed saying rumor has it to the tune of Adele's rumor has it. It doesn't work. Uh, uh, well, he save, just save it he for the Lindelof. Saeed singing "Rumor Has It" with Locke backing him up on the dog whistle. Yes, please. That would be fantastic. Uh, Kate is, you know, she's she's now been called out by Jack. Kate knows that Jack knows that she's a fugitive. Uh, Sawyer's going to come up to Kate, and they're basically going to start conspiring about eh, maybe somebody should do something about the marshal. Uh, in the tent, the marshal's warning Jack to never trust Kate; that she's going to do anything that she can to get away. Uh, and he makes the request. He's like, I want to talk to her. I want to have one final conversation with her. Uh, and so the marshal calls in Kate. Kate comes in. He wants to know what the final favor was because Kate said to the marshal on the plane crash, I, I, on Oceanic 815, she's like, I got one last favor. And he goes, oh, really? This should be good. And then he gets smashed in the Wang. face with the, with the briefcase. With the, I think that those are the guns. I was, thinking, uh, I was wondering gets, if that was the Halliburton case, but I wasn't entirely sure. In, in which case, that would be fantastic irony. Yeah, I, I would like to believe that that's the case, whatever the case may be. Uh, it turns out that the favor is she just wanted to make sure that Ray Mullen got the 23K. It was a hell of a mortgage. Uh, so this is showing that Kate is a really nice person, no matter what happened to her before, no matter what she did, at the end of the day, she still cares about the Peach Man. Yeah, <laughs> the Peach Man. <laughs> the Ray Peach Man, Peach man Mullen. <laughs> Ray, Ray the Peach Man Mullen, indeed. Uh, we cut to Jack, who's like outside and trying to give Kate some space, and Hoey's like, whoa, you left her alone? And there's like, yeah, what's she going to do? I don't know, she's strapped, <laughs> is, is what Hurley I says. love Hurley's vernacular <laughs> over the course of this and the hurlnacular has been yeah. fantastic this entire episode. Yeah, uh, she's strapped, says Hurley. And then Kate walks out 
And so Jack like breathes a sigh of relief, and then you hear the gunshot, and it's Sawyer. Uh, Sawyer has shot the marshal. Uh, but he did Sawyer's. not shoot the deputy. He did not shoot the deputy, and it turns out he didn't shoot uh, the marshal. <laughs> <The marshal. laughs> you know, he did shoot the marshal. He didn't kill the marshal. He messed it up. Uh, and so Jack kicks out Sawyer, and he has to euthanize the marshal himself, uh, which I feel like we don't talk about nearly enough, that Jack really does end up just having to kill a guy on like his third night uh, on the island. Um, the next day... Jack and Kate are on the beach. They come to an understanding. Kate's like, I, I want to tell you what I did. And Jack's like, don't. I don't want to hear it. Whatever you did before, it doesn't matter. Uh, I don't want to know anything about it. We all died on this plane crash. We all deserve to get a chance to start over. So Jack's basically saying, I'm going to keep the secret. I'm not going to tell anybody. Tabula rasa, Kate, is, uh, is what Jack says. Good. I'm glad Jack is in the same camp as me in terms of reading and mispronouncing words. Yes, yes. Uh, and it leads us to a really, really great uh, great uh, series of scenes. It's our first big music-driven montage yeah. of Lost. For those that might not remember, this was happening for quite some time in season one, basically as long as Hurley had a CD player. We were going to sort of get like a weird... I don't know, it reminds me a bit of like Grey's Anatomy or How I Met Your Mother, where one song is going to play while we see a bunch of characters doing things in the background that we've seen them doing over the course of the episode. It will sort of die along with uh, Hurley's CD player. Then we will get montages. It'll be more so inspired by the Michael Giacchino score than just here's a random song that's going to be the soundtrack over the final two minutes of the episode. Yeah, there are moments where this where this happens throughout the series, but it, it is much more prevalent it, to my memory anyway in the first season. And it's always fun when it's uh, when it's tacked on to Hurley's CD player. So yeah, so he puts on he puts on Joe Purdy's "Wash Away" is the song, really beautiful song, real Purdy song, really Purdy, very very Purdy. And we get to see some stuff. Saeed throws Sawyer an apple. Uh, it's like a really waxy airplane apple, so it's probably very bad. So don't think too kindly of Saeed. But he's like showing some empathy for Sawyer at the very least. <laughs> I would love that passive aggressive gesture. Yeah, it's <laughs> call like, me Al Jazeera. I give you a bad apple. I give you a badly you, bruised you, because apple. you're a bad apple. <laughs> yeah, I give you a very badly bruised apple that even if it wasn't bruised would taste like crap. Uh, certainly, no nothing to the to the jarred peaches at the Mullen station. Uh, and the final thing that we see in the montage is Locke, who, who we've seen throughout the episode. He's been uh, whittling this whistle, and he's blown the whistle, and he has summoned Vincent the dog, and he ties Vincent up to a tree relatively nearby and tells Michael, hey, Michael, if you want to be a hero to your son, the dog is over there. I felt like you should be the one to, to bring the dog back. And so it's like this really kind gesture from this character up to this point that you don't know very well, but of course... We know him in much deeper detail, uh, having watched the whole series. But it's really fun to have that juxtaposed with like these really sweet notes throughout this montage and at the end of this montage of the of the reunion between Walt and his dog. Uh, but then the camera, you know, it, it pivots, it swirls, and the music is starting to die away. It's starting to wash away as well, and it becomes something very ominous, something much more sinister. And the camera just lands on John Locke's face, and he looks very very grim uh and that sets us up very nicely for what we know will be an all-timer in next week's episode that we'll talk about walk about um but that's how tabula rasa and so uh that's the third episode of lost uh that's the story that's what you missed if you didn't watch it uh back for this week's podcast was is Locke sort of like you know whittling out of his ass when he made a dog whistle i know he studied up on survivalist skills but i mean how what number on the list is making a dog whistle how does he have that skill 
I think that he just like knows everything. He knows like a little bit of everything. Uh, you know, the stories that he's going to tell throughout the series and what he's going to talk to Boone about in a couple of episodes about like the trebuchet and uh, the, uh, you know, the whole uh, the story of the, the statue of David and everything and Michelangelo. Like he just knows like a little bit about everything. Mm. So it doesn't surprise me at all that Locke knows how to, how to whittle a dog whistle from, from wood. This is his element, man. He probably knows more about walkabouts than the walkabout guy, yeah. as he tells that guy. Well, I, I think uh, that yeah, if Lost took place today, Locke would totally be that guy who's like not really doing his work at the box factory. He's on Wikipedia the entire time just going down a wormhole perusing all these different random things. Totally. All right, so that's story point number one. That's the summary of Tabula Rasa. Let's go to story point number two, and let's talk about the case for Kate Austin. I think that, you know, this is a Kate-centric episode. She gets the first flashback of the series. She's entering uh, the Tabula Rasa conversation, Mike, with two MVP points on her side already. She's got momentum. She's the board leader when it comes to the 23-point section of the Down the Hatch podcast. So let's talk about Kate and why she's great or not great, if that is your read on her after this episode. But I'd love to just like get, you know, uh, to, to check the temperature on how you're feeling about Kate after Tabula Rasa. Let me throw the question back to you. Is this the best Kate flashback episode in your um, opinion? A flashback episode? Yes. We're not, yes. Yeah, we're not talking about, uh, you know, Kate uh, foster mothering Aaron. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because I, okay. I would say that's one of the... You know, this was a fun episode, but I think what the benefit of it is this is the first time we see the Kate backstory. I think, unfortunately, where her character stagnates a bit is we sort of reached the final point of how she got on that plane. And now the what the writers are doing is just sort of working backwards from there. So that's what, you right. know, eventually we're going to get what Kate did and what Kate does and what Kate is doing and however many verb conjugations we're going to do of that. But, you know, then we'll get the uh, the Nathan Fillion stuff. We'll get the Tom stuff, and I, I do wonder, you know, the choice to have this be focused around Ma- Ray Mullen's farm, did it put the writers in a weird place where now they sort of have to write all these random aspects around Kate when we already sort of know the big thing that's going to get her to the island? Yeah, I, I wonder about that. Um, I, I think that this is probably the best one. I Whatever the case may be, which is going to come up in the mid-season, is in the conversation for my least favorite episodes of Lost. Uh, so Kate is sadly the owner of some stinkers uh, when it comes to these episodes. I, I, I think that she the, cent, the Kate-centric episodes typically are not my favorite, even though I love Evangeline Lilly, and I think that she is a really underrated actress on this show. Um, but I think that this is probably the top. I think there's there's reasons why this episode um, works better than other Kate episodes for me. And part of it is is for reasons that don't have a ton to do with Kate uh, or are not necessarily like directly tied into her. I think that there are um, I, I love this early lost stuff, man. I love seeing the survivors like figuring out how to live out here yeah. and like the rudimentary stuff that they're doing and like for the first time ever being like, we're thirsty as hell. We've gone through all of the bottled water. We now need to like create troughs of water from the rainwater because it rains so often that that is probably something we should be doing. Uh, and just like seeing them like figure things out. And I, I really do like the Kate and the Marshall relationship throughout Lost, but I think it's especially great here in this episode. There is a really cool story to be told about this man with a secret who's dying uh, and he just wants to see his adversary one final time. Um, so I, I like Tabula Rasa more than most Kate episodes. Uh, I think it will it will probably rise above the rest of them, except for uh, and I, I realized after the fact that it is a flashback episode is a season five episode. Whatever happened, happened is a Kate episode. And that is well, one I of guess, my favorite I guess episodes. It's technically a flashback, right? Because it's pre-Ajira. 
so they they are on the island, uh, having returned to the island, and uh, Kate is now in the seventies. It's her and Sawyer trying to get a a wounded by Saeed uh, Ben Linus to the others to heal him. Mm. Uh, and it's flashing back to the reasons why she got on a Jira three uh, three sixteen. Uh, and through that, you get like her whole like declaration of she's come back to to find Claire to to get Aaron's mother back. And I think that there's just like some serious best acting from Evangeline Lilly in that episode. So I'm excited to get to that one. Yeah. The interesting thing about Kate is I think to the point that you made earlier, this episode proves that while Kate has sort of been branded a criminal, she is quote unquote, at least from our purview, a good person. It goes back to the conversation we talked about last time with Sawyer saying everyone has a role to play, but what Lost does is takes these archetypes of you know things we might assume of people based on you know uh their voice their ethnicity their job type the label they've been given and dig a lot deeper into that considering that you know kate saves ray mullins from the fire i mean she she did try to run away but she didn't steal money from him you know she was squirreling away all the stuff that he paid her for all the jars that she opened i mean it to the point where we see the flashback twice between the pilot and this episode of her with the marshal on the plane it's notable that once poor marshal gets hit with his own sense of irony she puts the oxygen mask on him she, right. she could very easily not do that and that also connects back to sort of what you were speaking about with the connection between kate and the marshal it's very interesting i will say that is something that they do flesh out a bit uh you know calling each other on holidays it actually reminds me a bit of either uh, Frank Abagnale Jr. and uh, Han Raddy from uh, Catch Me If You Can, or, right. for you musically kind folks, Valjean and Javert. Yes, oh my Miz. god. I don't know if we yeah. should go with uh, Lost Miz or Lay Mars, Josh, but either, either one's <laughs> fine, fine with me. Yeah, I like that. Um, so so Damon Lindelof and J.J. Abrams and the writer, the original writers of, of Lost after the pilot was produced and they needed to to sell ABC on on doing more, they concocted this series Bible. We talked about that in our introductory episode uh, where uh, we, we mentioned how in the series Bible, they're like, this is not a serialized show. Every episode is standalone. You can tune into Lost every week and you will not be confused. We wink, promise. Wink, wink, wink. wink. Uh, and in that series Bible, they wrote character descriptions for the main characters from the first season. And I, I think as we're doing these first initial centric episodes throughout season one, I think because some of them, some of the character descriptions end up being fairly spot on, while others are wildly different from who the characters end up becoming. I want to read to you what the series Bible says about Kate. Uh, it says, considerably more complicated than we originally gave her credit for, Kate is a runner who has nowhere to run. Raised as a military brat with a single father bouncing from base to base, the cumulative effect of never putting roots down later led to a series of busted relationships with men. Kate has what might be commonly referred to as quote-unquote commitment issues. And that brings us to the traumatic events that made her a fugitive, where the solitude and constant suspicion of life on the run merged with her self-reliance and practicality to harden her beyond anything she ever imagined. Her crime itself remains a mystery, a fact made even more intriguing by her refusal to apologize for it. An independent spirit who has problems with authority now finds herself free for the first time in years, but only as free as the island's coastline. Now forced to face her fears, the island reveals the emotion Kate tries so hard to hide and forces her to drop the walls she has built around herself. Even more interesting, she may finally be falling in love with a man she cannot escape. 
So that is the original series Bible pitch on Kate. And I think aspects of that remain true. Um, and certainly some things are shaken up based on what we know of Kate later on. Yeah, there are, you know, definitely issues with older men. All the best criminals have daddy issues, if you were. But it'd be interesting to see Kate as a military brat uh, instead of someone who lights some, you know, a house on fire to kill an evil man. Right. Well, so it, it turns out that the that the that the man that she kills is her biological father, who uh, is married to her mom and is presented to her as her stepdad. But it's her it's her father by birth. And the person that she thought was her biological father was a man who who raised Kate, not unlike the way that Kate ends up raising Aaron, mm. in fact, of like, I wanted to be a good parent to you. I loved you as a kid, all of that. Uh, and he's an army guy and he's going to have some tie ins with Saeed. So they obviously kept an aspect of that. But it's not that she was raised by a single father. Uh, she definitely has other other parental figures in the mix. And in fact, her relationship with her mom is going to be very complicated. Yeah. And that'll come up a few times throughout the series. Uh, so yeah, so that's what they, what they pitched to us on Kate. I love like the, you know, it's, it's pretty clear even early on that they had their hooks into this idea of Kate's going to be at the center of a lot of like the love triangle type of storytelling. Um, that's unfortunate. And they never really figure out a way to, to cleanly escape that stuff until they introduce her as a parent to Aaron and is when they start to kind of break away. But even then. There's still shades of that all through Kate's journey on Lost. Yeah, I will say the latter portion of this is a little weird with like the force to face her fears and the island reveals the emotion Kate tries so hard to hide. Uh, feels a little like airplane 40 cent romance novel, but I guess, you know, you, you do want to provide natural drama that might come from that. But yeah, it, it does also, you know, provide some interesting nuggets as to what leader Kate might have looked like where it seems like we're sort of off that train after pilot part two, which really put her, you know, leading team transceiver there. But there are still elements. I think we'll talk about the Jack Kate relationship as it develops, but I think there is a part of her that certainly wants to rise to Jack's position, at least make him respect her. And you have to imagine that she, uh, she feels like she may have lost some points considering the actions of this episode. All right, let's get into story point three. We're talking about some of the character connections and the long view thematic takeaways that we're moving on from Tabula Rasa with. Um, one that I that I really like, and, and there was a little bit of this in the pilot as well, uh, is that Kate ends up being the person that everybody wants to entrust with the gun and the bullets, the ammunition. Uh, so I feel like, you know, they, they save her a bullet. There's one bullet in the clip. Kate is the person who ends up with the gun here in episode two. Um, I I think it's fair that she ends up getting to take the show's final shot. Like I, I for me, like that that was controversial at the time, and maybe people don't remember. Uh, although I, I would have a hard time forgetting uh, the moment in the series finale mm-hmm. where it looks like the smoke monster or the man in black, if you prefer to call him that, is about to kill Jack, but he gets shot from behind. And it's Kate with the rifle. And she says, I saved you a bullet. And at the time, like, that was just, like, kind of cheesy to me. But I think, like, between the fact that Kate and the monster are actually pretty tied together as early as the pilot, uh, the fact that Kate's taking apart the gun in that first episode, the fact that she's getting the gun here, I think it ends up being one of those things that they could look back on in retrospect and be like, we can close that loop here. It's not exactly like a loop anyone was, like, dying to close up. But it's a loop that they can close all the same. Also really fun to your point earlier about how much on a smaller scale the first season is. I, f- I forget just how much debate there is around guns. We're about to get into whatever the case may be. But like cut to season two. We're like, hey, look, we found a hatch. Hey, look, there's just a bunch of guns in it. Woo! And then yes. just from then on, you know, weapons are willy nilly around Lost. Yeah, pretty much. 
Um, I I like that Saeed is going to be the guy who's like when they come back from the hike, they try to get he's he's going to like everybody give me your tech, give me all your stuff. I'm going to boost this signal for a radio signal. Uh, also, we need to be drinking water. You got to stay hydrated. You're going to get too thirsty. We got to set up these tarps. We got to ration foods. Uh, and to me, just like very early on, Saeed is so clearly the best leader for this. Yep. Yep. He's le- he's level headed. He's got he's got plans. He's got action plans. Like early on, very quickly, Saeed establishes himself as if they had to take a vote, uh, he would get my vote for president of the island. Yeah, he's even dividing people into teams. He's getting very little pushback because I think his biggest uh, voice of dissension in Sawyer, nobody really gives a crap about i do wonder again like if saeed was not the character that he is and if lost was not done at the time that it was maybe we would be having a conversation about saeed as leader but at least in this interim period before jack steps up as the george washington of the losties saeed's going to be part of that constitutional convention and sort of be the head of that as they craft their own declaration of independence uh, we didn't talk about it much, but uh, the first meet-cute between Charlie and Claire is in this episode. They're, like, moving luggage yeah, around. With an assist from Locke's wheelchair. Yeah, yeah. He's, like, moving some luggage in Locke's wheelchair. And Charlie, like, is like, uh, so is, where's your husband? Was he on the plane? She goes, no, he's not in the picture. How modern of me. He he moved uh, on quick from Shannon. I, I think he's just chasing anything that's blonde. Well, the so the, the Shannon thing is going to come to a head in Walkabout. Uh, if if you haven't revisited yet, uh, there's <laughs> that storyline is ridiculous. Uh, so that'll that'll be coming up pretty soon. But that'll be the end of the Shannon thing. They think it's going to be all eyes on uh, Claire from that point on. Um, you mentioned the the jarred peaches in the flashback uh, when Kate is in the closet getting her money. Uh, the other thing that I took note of there is uh, this is you know not the last time that we are going to see Kate in a closet surrounded by canned goods. I'm, I'm already having flashbacks to early season two when Desmond is going to lock her away in the Dharma closet. Oh, you mean when we see the same scene like three from three different angles over the course of a season? That's going to get exhausting, uh, by the way, to do that for like <laughs> three straight weeks of podcasting. by then, yeah. <laughs> I know. I think so, too. Um, and then one other thing that I liked in terms of just like sort of uh, character growth stuff uh, is I, I like that Sawyer misses the the marshal's heart that he tries to kill the marshal and he fails this is the second person in a very short period of time that sawyer has either killed by mistake or failed to kill uh so like two two like hit jobs that he has bungled badly uh as we're going to come to find out later in season one not in his first episode that sawyer was thought that he was killing the sawyer uh and it instead was a was a different guy that he was mistakenly sent to kill uh so there's just like a lot that is going on for sawyer at this moment in time um and as we were saying last week when do we start tracking the moment when sawyer starts to become a little bit more of a root worthy character maybe that's starting to happen Mm. as early as this episode it's interesting you say that because i don't see that at all and maybe we'll get into the lvps and mvps I mean, I took it as much more literal that I think he really did mean to kill him. I mean, when he walks outside, he's like, I had to do what you couldn't do. I'm the guy that gets things done. And he just straight up missed. I think it's more so just bad skill than it is maybe a change of literal heart. And uh, to the point where, from what I was reading from behind the scenes, uh, you know, uh, Josh Holloway had actually approached the writers and was like, why would Sawyer miss his heart? He usually, that's not the type of thing that he would do. And they're like, oh, yeah. You know what? I think Sawyer might be farsighted. And this was actually one of the first uh, ideas for them to spark the whole storyline about Sawyer getting glasses. 
Oh, amazing. Uh, that's incredible. Uh, no, I, I, I don't think that like he like shot him and then had the change of heart of like, oh, I shouldn't kill him. I think it was more like, I think when he realized that he didn't kill the marshal and that mm. instead like he bungled the job, that sits with him really poorly and really rattles him. Because I think despite the fact that he's this confidence man who's done some bad stuff, Sawyer ultimately isn't like a viciously bad guy. Uh, I think that he's just somebody who, I don't know, he's, he's somebody who, who, who feels like a hardened criminal and fancies himself a hardened criminal. But at the end of the day, he's not a natural killer. Mm-hmm. This isn't something that like is really in his bones. I think it's something that he has like felt forced into to some degree. It, yeah. it feels like he's got to go further down that rabbit hole. It, yeah, it could be one of those things of like, okay, I, I've heard all about this. I know I have to do this. And then when you sort of get to the plate, you're like, oh, my God, I did this. Uh, oh, no. Oh, God. Oh, God. What have I done? So, yeah, we'll we'll track sort of from here on out how he maybe approaches the idea of what he feels are like the black and white decisions that come in this urban jungle. All right. Let's get to story point four. Final story point. Uh, some behind the scenes production notes, as we like to do here when we've got them. Uh, this is the first flashback of Lost outside of the the flashes back to the plane crash and the pilot. Um, when writing the series Bible, the writers, they were fleshing out substantial backstories for the characters to explain their motivations. But originally, those backstories might not all have seen the light of day. Uh, one of the, the surprisingly late contributions to the show was the eventual decision to make the flashbacks a weekly part of the show. That wasn't part of the DNA from the jump. And this is from Javier Griot Marx Watch's uh, big Lost Will and Testament Uh, This is what he writes. He says, as we waited to find out our fate, we began to fully beat out what would eventually become episode two of the series Tabula Rasa. This early attempt at a full story break was an interesting test of our premises of what the show was and could be. The truly gripping notion of having to euthanize a dying castaway became the center of this episode break and made for an outstanding A story with a lot of self-evident scene possibilities. As we tried to graft to that a spine-tingling runner about digging latrines and a destined-for-must-see TV discussion about the funeral procedure for those who died in the plane crash... One undeniable truth kept coming up, and it was a truth that we kept skirting for three months of brainstorming but had never embraced. If the pilot featured flashbacks to the plane before the crash, and the context they provided for the island story was such a great source of contrast and revelation, and if we spent so much time developing the backstories of these characters, then why not make that a part of the series? Wouldn't it be great if we could see Kate's arrest by the marshal and maybe their previous Kimball Gerard relationship as a contrast to her trying to pretend that she didn't know him? It's difficult to imagine that for so long, when they were part of the pilot and frequently discussed in the think tank, and when they were so clearly the pivotal thematic lever of the series, that the flashbacks were not considered as being of the essence to the show. Instead, the device was sort of tacitly agreed to have been a thematic grace note. I find that very interesting, Mike, that the flashbacks were such a late addition to the program. Yeah, because, I mean, I guess it was this pretty nouveau idea, right? Of They had, you know, sketched out the background of all these characters, but they were going to have their own tabula, t- tabula rasa where they were just going to put them on the island and we're, they were going to know the background of these characters, but we weren't necessarily going to. And it would be crazy to imagine what that type of show would be like. I guess it would be like a dramatic Gilligan's Island where all the action is island focused. But instead of, you know, taking it to flashbacks, it provides much 
meteor story points and revelations like we saw in the last episode and like we'll see in next episode as well. It allows us to take some breathing room away from the island, and it allows the writers to not have to divest all these random storylines into island-centric stuff. We're still going to get, you know, some goofy B and C lines, especially in season one, but I think it gives the writers a lot more room and a lot more leniency to write these characters and how different they might be on and off the island. All right, so here's another interesting thing uh, from uh, behind the scenes, or at least maybe you would think that it was a behind-the-scenes thing. There's a moment toward the end of Tabula Rasa during the montage where you see, uh, you know, Michael is bringing Vincent back to Walt. And there's this great image of Walt who's standing with the wreckage of Oceanic 815 in the background. And if you look really closely, you see this very faded image on the plane that looks a hell of a lot like a Dharma logo. Uh, and it, it sent people into like this massive conspiratorial deep dive that I very much remember from my first time experiencing Lost once the Dharma Initiative was revealed. I remember going on message boards and people being like, there's a Dharma logo on the plane. They've been thinking about this the entire time. Uh, So it was this persistent rumor that the Oceanic 815 flight had this hidden Dharma logo on it. But the reality is, in fact, that the markings on the plane, which do vaguely resemble an octagon if it's not entirely symmetrical, are actually regularly found on planes and can be seen in shots of the plane after it was purchased, but while it still had its old livery. Um, the markings occur when sections of the plane's body are reinforced during repair, during repairs. So in the case of the shot that led to those conspiracies, the markings had clearly come from below one of the doors on the side of the plane. We've got some links in the show notes that will show you uh, both the image uh, and also some of the stuff that is debunking it. Um, I, I think even if you were trying to retcon it, Mike, I don't know that the Dharma Initiative having their logo on the Oceanic 815 plane would make any kind of sense. Sharks, Um, yes. Planes, no. Yeah. So I don't know. Uh, And a shout out to Jonathan Krauss, the great Jonathan Krauss, who who sent some great feedback in this week, uh, who also uh, who who brought this back to my attention, uh, how all of this came together uh, a couple of last uh behind the scenes type of things uh we hear patsy's Cl- patsy Klein's leaving on your mind uh at the at the, in this episode you heard it at the top of the podcast in the cold open patsy Klein ends up being uh very associated with kate as mm-hmm. a character you hear a lot from patsy Klein throughout the series so this is the first time you're hearing it patsy Klein, who died in a plane crash uh gotta imagine that is something that is uh not a coincidence <laughs> a quinky dink here as they're planning some of this stuff out um, and I guess the lyrics they could apply to Kate. She's leaving Ray in the middle of the night. They could apply to Ray himself, who's trading the one thing he cares about, Kate, for another, which is $23,000 in reward. Although I guess he also cares about uh, jarred peaches. So perhaps uh, it doesn't... Unless he's thinking like how many jarred peaches he can buy with the $23,000. That's a lot. He might as well just sell his home at that point and live in a house of jarred peaches. Yeah, a lot more uh, on the uh, the music from this episode. Uh, once again, shout out to Jim Fells, who has a Tabula Rasa video up. We'll link to that in the show notes. And, speaking- and who also commented on last week's podcast as well. So uh, the fanship is mutual, sir. Great to have you aboard, Jim, and keep up the fantastic work. Um, speaking of music, let's use that as a segue into our eight sounds section of the podcast this week. 
Mike, and I will uh, I will let you take the wheel on this for uh, for however long you'd like to drive. Okay, so let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. We're going to go back to the lie, Team Transceiver, sort of doing a debrief from the signal, and we'll get a little bit of uh, what Josh loves, Saeed's demonstration. It'll ultimately you know, lead to them all deciding to collude to fabricate about what exactly they experienced. This is Australia. This is us. I stick. Two days ago, we take off from Sydney. We fly along the same northeast route every commercial airline bound for Los Angeles does. Now, the pilot, he said he lost communication with the ground, correct? Yeah, six hours in. He turned around and headed for Fiji. So we changed course. Regrettably, no one knew we changed course. The turbulence hit. We know the rest. Pilot said we were over a thousand miles off course. Yeah, but they'll find us. They have satellites in space that can take pictures of your license plate. If only we were all wearing license plates. Well, aren't you the pessimist? Basic photography, point and shoot. Satellites can shoot, but they must be told where to point. Oh. Bollocks. Okay, really enjoyed the puppet show. Fantastic. But we're stuck in the middle of damn nowhere. How about we talk about that other thing? You know, transmission Abdul picked up on his little radio? The French chick that said they're all dead. The transmission's been on a loop for how long was it, Freckles? 16 years. Right. Let's talk about that. Well... We have to tell the others when we get back. Yeah, tell them what exactly? What you didn't hear anything. I'm not a stupid translator. No one's going to tell them anything. To relay what we heard, without fully understanding it, will cause a panic. If we tell them what we know, we take away their hope. And hope is a very dangerous thing to lose. So we lie. I know, I get where Saeed's coming from, but Josh, I believe your friend of mine, Gabby Pascuzzi, could tell you that hope is not a strategy. No, <laughs> it's not. Uh, and also, I have questions about the license plate thing. If only we were all wearing license if plates. If only. I mean, this could be like a loss gets solved in four minutes type of thing if they just all happen to be wearing vanity license plates around their next Flavor Flav style. I mean, I, I guess I don't know, but I don't think that like them all wearing license plates would have made any kind of difference to them getting discovered uh, in any context. But uh, that would be fun. It would be fun if they were all wearing license plates, maybe in Lost 2. Uh, the thing that I love about that, that clip is the whole so we lie like i i it's been a you know it's been a few months now since i've since i've rewatched the whole show and i watched it so fast that some of the details didn't glom on the way that they will uh when you're doing this on the weekly um but the the second episode of season five i believe is called the The lie Lie. and and it, it centers on the oceanic six talking about like this very basic idea of like People are going to freak out if we tell them the truth. We have to lie. Uh, and it's, it's just cool to see Saeed in this context being the guy who's leading the charge of we got to lie to everybody when he's going to be a reluctant yes to that vote in season five. Like, it's not something that he's really going to want to do. Hurley, in fact, is going to be very pissed off that Saeed uh, votes to lie. Uh, so it's just it's just cool to get kind of uh, the the early DNA on something like that later on. And you have to wonder if that decision was affected by this decision. You know, if maybe he ultimately thinks that 
maybe not disclosing what happened, you know, might have uh, sown some distrust in the group, or maybe things would have been a bit different had they ended up, you know, coming right out and saying, hey, this is what's going on. We might want to uh, not keep our hopes up at the moment and instead focus on boosting that transceiver, but he's got a plan in motion. Uh, Let's travel to Flashback Land for the first time in terms of our eight sounds going on this season. Here is Kate meeting the Peach Man at his farm. Good morning. Morning. You were sleeping in my sheep pen. Sorry. How'd you get here? I walked. You walked? Yeah. From where? Town. Nearest town's 15 kilometers. Maybe that's why I'm so exhausted. What's your name? Annie. You hungry, Annie? So you want to tell me why you're trespassing on my property? I ran out of money. You're an American. Canadian. I graduated from college and figured I'd see the world. Australia was top of my list, so I hopped a flight to Melbourne, but I don't know anybody here, so I just figured I'd walk for a while, you know. Melbourne's 100 kilometers from here. I like walking. And you just happen to wander onto my farm. I like farms, too. You know how to work one? Yeah. My wife died eight months ago Wednesday. She left me with too many chores and a hell of a mortgage. If you help me with the first one, I'll give you a fair wage and a place to stay. Deal. Uh, I'm a lefty. <laughs> oh, Ray. I, I, I want to touch... What up- a jokester. I'm a lefty. <laughs> I, I want to touch upon the nickname Annie for a second, because it, it has such an interesting significance in Lost. I know that, obviously, I believe Kate's middle name is Anne. I believe Annie is the uh, the game, the girl who young Ben Linus took a shining yes. to back in uh, The That's Man right. Behind the Curtain. But I'm, the musical lover in me always looked to Little Orphan Annie, uh, this idea of, you know, this very precocious girl who really has no parental figures to call home to and ends up, you know, having to uh, shine herself up to this kind older man. So maybe the fact that she chose this name just happens to be a nice representation of the small relationship she built with Ray over the course of this episode. One of the other things that I enjoy about this is we get a few instances throughout Lost of Kate eating breakfast, just like pounding breakfast across a stranger. Uh, and this is this is the first. I guess she's not exactly going to be pounding breakfast across from Ben Linus, but she will have a full spread at her disposal should she choose to do it. Uh, so I always just thought that that was kind of fun. Oh, can't wait for Kate to face off against Walter Jr. in a breakfast face-off. <laughs> Oh my god, I do not like her chances there. Well, speaking of face-off, you mentioned it before. Here is Jack and Sawyer, round one in the fuselage. What are you doing in here? Trick or treat, same as you. You're looting. Ah, you say potato. What's in the bag? 
Booze, smokes, a couple Playboys. What's in yours? Medicine. Well, just about sums it up, don't it? You do this back home, too? Steal from the dead? Brother, you gotta wake up and smell the gold crap here. Rescue ain't coming. You're just wasting your time. You're trying to save a guy. Last time I checked, had a piece of metal the size of my head sticking out of his bread basket. Let me ask you something. How many of those pills are you gonna use to fix him up? As many as it takes. Yeah. How many you got? Just not looking at the big picture, Doc. Still back to civilization. Yeah? And where are you? Me? I'm in the wild. But apparently he's not at target practice. <laughs> I love that. I'm in the wild. Uh, it's just great. It's so representative of the first season. And, and really what's at play throughout the whole show is like, who are you now that you're here? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, are, are you still are you still a member of society? Um, are you just like a, a a total savage who's now living in the jungle and living, uh, you know, through through the laws of the animal kingdom? Um, are you somewhere in between those two extremes? Uh, and to to get this between Jack and Sawyer, this is foundational to their relationship for the whole show, and not just their relationship for the whole show, but who these two people are for the whole show. Uh, and one of the things that I love about Jack and Sawyer is I think that in a lot of ways. Their ships in the night. Like I, I think that Jack starts one way uh, and Sawyer starts one way, and eventually they kind of cross paths and start to become a little bit of who the other guy is. Mm. Uh, where where Jack, you know, stops being such a, a a heroic leader of men, and in some ways becomes like a really selfish asshole. Uh, and the selfish asshole who's James Sawyer Ford becomes a heroic leader of men during you know his his stint in the seventies. Uh, so that's another fun thing that I think that we should be tracking. Yeah, if you looked at these two men right now and I said one of them is going to throw himself out of a helicopter to protect six people, you would say it's not the guy who says he's going trick-or-treating by going through people's exactly. stuff. Exactly. And it's not just for Kate. Like, it's for Hurley, too, like when he does that. So, uh, yeah, it's, his transformation is, is pretty elegant. Yeah, we'll talk later, I'm sure, over the course of this season. I actually uh, wrote a paper for Pop Culture and Religion about the locative, pun unintended, versus utopian ideals found in Lost when it comes to uh, faith and structured faith versus unstructured faith. And that's really represented well, again, in this exchange of civilization versus the wild. Nice. Let's go to a scene you love, Josh. Here is Kate and Jack's rainy confrontation post Marshall chokeout. So what are you going to do about it? About what? About him. I told you, he needs water. Will he suffer? What? Will it be quick? No, it won't be quick. Two, three, maybe four days. And he'll feel it. Yeah, he'll feel it. Can't you put him out of his misery? I saw your mugshot, Kate. I am not a murderer. So Jim Fellows pointed this out in his video, but I really loved it. That music stinger has shown up only one other time in Lost History. It was in season four when Kate interrogates Miles uh, after he touches down on the island. So I love that even though it's only used twice, we have a Kate interrogates music. I like that. I wish that we'd heard more of it. I think it's a really, really beautiful piece of music that has like, it, it, ha- it has this sense of like prying at the edges of the truth. 
right? Like it's like, like you can, it's like a, it's like an audio crowbar. Like there's something underneath and you're trying to lift it up. Uh, and it, you don't need to use much force because the, the truth is just about to burst out. And it's like Kate is still trying to maintain this cover as the rain is pouring down. Uh, and she's still trying, like she's like exasperated at this point because she's just been attacked by this guy who's been hunting her for so long. Uh, and she just wants him gone, but also wants to ease his suffering. Like it's a complicated thing. And Jack doesn't want to be told to kill somebody. Certainly not by this person who he knows is a fugitive and he can't keep that secret anymore. He has to call her out. And the the switch on Evangeline Lilly's face in that moment is really, really priceless. Uh, it's just excellent acting all around and really underscored by that really beautiful music. And this is the low point for, you know, we saw Jack sort of in denial about his revelation previously in the episode where Holly's like, this is a big deal. And Jack's like, it's not. It's her business. But I think it's very clear from this scene when he just sort of lets his emotions slip that he is assuming the worst when it comes to Kate as a criminal. Uh, again, maybe considering how fervent Edward Mars was, it makes sense for him to assume the worst, but I can imagine that I Am Not a Murderer was very pointed towards her as well, if if he assumes what she did. All right, so yeah, something we didn't talk about in Story Point One, but another fun little island thing. Michael still searches for Vincent. Uh, Walt, as if actually being pretty shaded to him, you know, Michael says, hey, I'm your friend. And, and Walt says, if you were my friend, you'd find Vincent. So Michael makes a promise to look for Vincent, but he finds something quite different. Yeah. As soon as it stopped raining. Good, nice. I'm gonna find your dog. Yeah, I'm just gonna go walking through the haunted damn jungle looking for your. Vincent? Vincent. That you, buddy? Something was uh, chasing me, so uh, you know, I don't hear it now. Uh, but you, you should probably uh, head back. Um, I, I, I didn't see anything. Uh, you know, if you're worried about it, I, I, I didn't see anything. Does it make it better or worse, Josh, that Sun knows exactly what he's saying this entire conversation? I, you know, I think she, if, since she knows, like, I think she understands how mortified he is uh, and how embarrassed he is by everything. Uh, but the whole thing is so awkward. And maybe you forget how early on uh, Lost, like, flirted at the edge of maybe Michael and Sun were going to be a thing mm. because Jin was such a jerk uh, at that moment in time. 
And I'm glad it never really goes anywhere. I, I wish that it went somewhere else for Michael ultimately, uh, but I'm glad that like an affair with Son was not the direction it went in. But this is a funny scene. Yeah, I, I enjoy his little bit of comic relief. Poor Michael seems to be just on the receiving end of all these goofs. He does get the dog in the end by Locke basically handing it to him, but suffice to say, he has gotten off to a, an awkward start. I also will say, it is weird to me how these two here, Michael and Walt, hear just a random noise in the jungle, and they think it's Vincent. Like, let's remember during the monster scene last week about how there's this giant eruption from the jungle, and Walt's like, oh, is that Vincent? Just It's one of those, like, uh, it's the guy with the butterfly memes of just, like, random noise. Is that Vincent? It feels like they are just right. grasping at straws. Totally, totally. All right, so let's go to Edward Mars and Kate's final conversation while he is on his literal deathbed. Let's see how these two foes reconcile. What was it? What? In favor. I don't know what you're talking about. Last thing I heard before the crash, you wanted a favor. I wanted you to make sure that Ray Mullen got his 23 grand. But the guy who overrated you, huh? He had a hell of a mortgage. You really are one of a kind. You know, you would have got away if you hadn't gone back for him. In case you hadn't noticed, did they get away? Yeah, but free to me. I'm gonna die, right? Yeah. So, are you gonna do it? Or what? And those end up being the final chronological words of the marshal we will see him in flashbacks and in the you know the sideways universe but his final words are well are you gonna do it or aren't you or what uh unless uh un- we're not counting blah, 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 yeah i would say choking words. on your own blood is more of a, yeah, a, a sound not. effect than it really is a word again just to like stand up and salute evangeline lily i love the way when when he says i'm gonna die right and like it takes her a while to like get the pain yeah out uh, she's just so good. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm I'm standing Evangeline Lilly as an actress all through Lost. Yeah, uh, and 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 starting very very early on. I also really like this idea of you know Cadence being like, hey, uh, she she says you know, hey, you're not free. She's like, oh, well, look what I'm doing now. And he says, you don't look free to me. And it might be a last minute jab at her, but it also speaks volumes about how it actually speaks towards uh, the the show Bible quote that you had attributed to her, Josh, about how right. she has these walls that are still built up around her at this point. So while she might be physically free, I think that until that conversation with Jack, she still has something hanging over her head, and maybe after the fact as well, all this guilt built up of all the stuff that she's done over the course of her time on the run. That means she's not truly free. The slate hasn't been completely wiped clean. There's a little bit of residue of chalk left. All right, let's get to the next sound. All right, let's get to what ultimately does the marshal in here. This is right after Sawyer shoots the marshal. I spared everyone's eardrums by editing out the gunshot, <laughs> but yes. here we go. What did you do? What you couldn't. Look, I get where you're coming from being a doctor and all, but he wanted it. Hell, he asked me. 
So I don't like it any more than you do. Something had to be done. Oh, no way. Guys. You shot him in the chest? I was aiming for his heart. You missed. Man, is he still breathing? You perforated his lung. It'll take hours to bleed out. There was... I only had one bullet. Get out. Get out! So according to you, those are the Marshall's final words. With no context, like if you were just listening to it and you didn't remember the scene and you didn't know that that was like the Marshall dying that you were listening to, kind of sounds like uh, him doing like an impression of the alien from Aliens. <laughs> yes. Like, <sighs> Sawyer, you didn't kill the xenomorph. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you got acid everywhere. <laughs> acid for blood. Uh, you know what, Mike? I don't think we talk enough about the fact that Jack had to kill the Marshall. Yes. Uh, you know, Sawyer shoots the Marshall in the chest. He He misses. Uh, I love the way that Jack says, you missed. Uh, just so much, uh, there's so much vindictiveness there. Um, but Jack has to euthanize him. And I don't think we talk about that. We don't really think about that. Um, sort of in a, in a similar way, when Boone dies, uh, Jack, that's where like his anti-Locke streak starts to kick mm-hmm. in. But up until that moment, he and Locke are very on the level, at the very least, like they're cool with each other. Um, and Jack has no patience for Sawyer, very, very early on in Lost. And I think a lot of that is attributed to this, where it's like, you made me kill a guy. I had to kill somebody because of you. Like, I had to, I had to kill him quicker because there was clearly no way he was going to bounce back from it. So you made me take this man's life. Yeah. Um, you got to imagine that that sat pretty heavily with Jack in the days ahead. And it compares really interestingly to sound number three, where... When Sawyer, Mr. Wildman, tries to, you know, send things off in a wild way, he ends up screwing things up even more. And he has to bring in the guy from civilization to have to cross boundaries and literally get blood on his hands. It also brings to mind, you know, uh, Jack's career as well. I think we're certainly going to see that he does lose patience. Uh, I believe, you know, it's the montage where he ends up bringing Charlie back to life and is not so lucky in the flashback as well. This is something he does deal with every day but this feels a little different maybe it's the situation of the island maybe it's just the fact that he's not within the confines of a hospital and you know edward mars's family didn't sign a waiver saying dnr but i don't know it, it definitely is very chilling and i totally agree it's something that we very much forget and it, it's the most meaningful death we get pretty much until boone even though a bunch of people died in the pilot this is the first like really impactful one and the first of many many over the course of lost All right, final sound. What do we got? All right, we have the starting over conversation between Jack and Kate. And of course, we have that great credit where credit is due uh, motif from the island that I brought up last week. Usually happens when someone is brought into or excluded from the group. Appears to be the former here. tell you what I did. Why he was after me. I don't want to know. 
It doesn't matter, Kate. Who we were. What we did before this, before the crash. It doesn't really... Three days ago, we all died. We should all be able to start over. Jack, saying that everyone died three days ago is not helping you dispel the rumors. (laughs) No, it's purgatory, man. I told you. There you go. Podcast over. That's it. Uh, The music's so great. Uh, It's a. I I love the beachside chats between Jack and Kate. That's a. That's a fun kind of recurring uh, set of scenes that we'll get throughout the show. Um, but there, that's he does. If only he had said like tabula rasa in the context of what he's saying there, then the matter could have been settled uh, once and for yeah. all. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that would be a very Locke thing to do. Of like Jack's talking about the loose concept, but Locke will encyclopedically define it, bring up its its etymology, its lineage, etc. Yeah, I think that that's more of a Locke move, and Locke's not really talking quite. No, he's quite he's yet. whistling a happy tune instead. Yes. All right. Well, let's get into the 15, 16 others. But before we do, before we get into our feedback, we got to stop down for a moment and thank our friends, uh, Mike, over at Sun Basket, not Gin Basket. Oh, no. Well, Sun got caught in a very interesting position this week, but I think Sun Basket is going to bring more flavorful, less awkward treats. Yes, absolutely. No matter what you like to eat, Sun Basket makes it easy. They have paleo, carb conscious, gluten free, Mediterranean, diabetes friendly, and vegan meal plans. Whatever you're into, choose from 18 weekly recipes. Everything you need to eat clean and healthy. Sunbasket sends you organic produce and clean ingredients right to your door to create your own dishes from their recipes, such as shrimp pad thai with rice noodles and sugar snap peas, or Hawaiian loco moco with teriyaki chicken and fried eggs. Mike, Emily Fox, and I, we've made a few of the recipes from Sunbasket, including some really good Hawaiian garlic shrimp with coconut rice. And I have to say, for anybody who winds up at some point in Oahu, uh, where they shot Lost, you gotta you gotta go track down some some of that sweet Hawaiian garlic shrimp. But if you can't make it there, the Sun Basket version is delectable. It was really really tasty stuff. Highly recommend. Did you have a flashback to your time in Hawaii as you bit into that shrimp? Yes, I had that sense memory, and it was tremendous. Uh, right now, Sun Basket has a special promotion for Post Show Recaps listeners for up to sixty dollars off. off your first two deliveries, which is a pretty great deal if it means putting meal planning on autopilot. Uh, And we don't trust the regular pilots here around uh, down the hatch. After what happened to Seth Norris. Uh, You can get in on some lunch planning, too, because Sun Basket also offers up five-minute salad mixes for an easy lunch that's going to help you eat clean and feel Great. Sunbasket makes it easy and convenient to cook healthy, delicious meals at home, no matter how much experience you have in the kitchen. Everything's pre-measured and easy to prep so you can get a healthy and delicious meal on the table in as little as 15, yes, 15 minutes. So put meal planning on autopilot with this special offer. Go to sunbasket.com slash post to get up to $60 off. Sunbasket.com slash post to learn more about this limited time $60 off special. All right, Mike. 
feedback time. 15, 16 others. And looking at the clock, we've got a little bit under 30 minutes to get everything done that we need to get done in order to evade our 108-minute fate. Do you think we can do it? No. <laughs> no. Oh, my God. All right. Well, we're going to go as quickly as we possibly can. Other number one, we got this note from Jeff Ritchie that I think really um, summarizes for me what I like about Tabula Rasa uh, in, in the long haul and what it does for me on a lost rewatch. And I, I feel very similarly to, to Jeff about its impact. Jeff writes in and says, in a celebration of sorts, I decided to make a go at this rewatch with you guys. I did my first ground up rewatch back in season four. During the writer's strike, I convinced my wife to start at the beginning with me and get caught up. I haven't watched much Lost at all since it ended. Most of season five and six, I podcasted about the show as part of After Lost. Cool shout out to After Lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as the show ended, so did my time in the hatch with After Lost, and the show became an old but fond memory. I started my rewatch last night, and even though I remember how much I love the show, I was waiting for the show to remind me. Why did I feel so strongly about this in the first place? The pilot episodes were fine, and the Kate-centric episode was, it kind of made me think, why am I doing this? But it was the last three minutes that reminded me. So much is happening in that song, that scene, that transition. I can't wait to load up episode four tonight, Walkabout, which is widely considered one of the best episodes of the series, at least top five, baby. Thanks again for letting me nerd out about Lost. You've given me a reason and a chance to watch again with new eyes. Once again, that's from Jeff Ritchie, who's the co-founder of the After Lost podcast. Uh, and I really do think, Mike, it's, you know, there's a lot to like in Tabula Rasa. I don't think that we'll talk about it as an elite episode of Lost by any stretch of the imagination. But that final montage, there's so much magic baked into it. Yeah, and I think it proves just how what a strong stable of characters there are that you can return to those points and not feel it's overly hokey. This is also, a, it's a tough episode to land. This is the one between the big gargantuan spectacle of a pilot and one of the biggest character revelations and twists we have seen in the series coming up in Walkabout. It's always going to be really tough to fit in between those. And I would say the meat in the sandwich is pretty good. You know, I, I believe it from a ratings perspective, it was the lower rated episode of season one, but I feel like compared to some other Kate episodes, even some season one episodes i think it does hold up and it's a good glimpse into her character i feel like the marshal's death is significant and you know sets a a pull a tone for what we're about to experience with law so i thought it was a pretty solid episode to revisit uh all right other number two we're talking blank slates let's get into the tabula rasa of it all which does mean blank slate it's most it's most famously associated with a theory of the philosopher john locke who suggested that babies are born with minds that are a blank slate and can only become who they are through the imprint of knowledge. Uh, Ben Martell notes that, as Mike Bloom is probably able to now attest, philosopher John Locke clearly hadn't spent much time around newborns. Is Asher Bloom, is he a blank slate, would you say? I mean, I hope so, considering the stuff that he's been watching with my wife Angela and I. I really hope not much is imprinting on that poor baby, aside from the colors. But yeah, the theory is super interesting, obviously coming from the philosopher John Locke, and it really speaks towards this idea of nature versus nurture, really pumping up the nurture aspect. And I feel like that's a great representation of Kate as well. This is someone who did not have a great upbringing. And as a result, maybe her behavioral patterns were affected by that. If she was that military brat, who knows? Maybe she would be acting a different way. But because of the way she was raised, that wrote her slate for her. And now she's able to erase it and maybe raise herself differently in this island setting. Okay, so Ben Martell goes on to ask us a question. Who is better at giving people blank slates, Jack or Locke? 
In this episode, we see Locke giving Michael a blank slate in a much more selfless way than the way that Jack gives Kate a blank slate. Uh, I do think that uh, that Locke is the guy. I think Locke gives people more of a chance to just like stand up on their own and be their own person than Jack does. Yeah, I would say at least season one Locke. You know, I feel like when we start getting to season two Locke of, oh, that Charlie, he's dirty. Get away from him, Claire. Maybe we start getting to a bit more judgy Locke. But for now, Locke's on cloud nine. And so I think he says, the island reinvented me. Why can't it reinvent you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, All right, let's go to other number three. More questions about Tabula Rasa. Uh, This is from Brendan Fitzpatrick, who says, this is probably some retconning slash back justification, but the blank slate nature of a Tabula Rasa fits with the experiment that Jacob is trying to achieve and the game that he's playing with the man in black. What happens if I bring them to this island? They have the opportunity to make all their own choices, become someone else or a better version of who they were before. What happens when I wipe their slates clean? Will natural instinct to destroy each other come in as the man in black predicts? Or will they end up saving each other and taking care of everyone in this place? Through two episodes, we're already hitting the big themes of the end game of this show. And that's what makes it so effing cool, is what Brendan Fitzpatrick says. Yeah, the, it's, it's a really cool idea. We spoke about last week, you know, one piece is light, one piece is dark. This idea of playing a game. And we get it here, too, where Jacob, for one reason or another, brings these people to the island to see if their previous behaviors are going to affect the things that they do. Uh, and if they do, how is that going to inform their candidacy to become the protector of the island? Island. And ultimately, you spoke about Jack's character changing, uh, even, even though he only takes protectorship for a certain portion of time. It seems like the Jack from season one wouldn't be able to handle that position like the Jack of season six. All right. Other number four comes from Brian Elwood. Uh, who <laughs> that's a great point to make. Brian writes in and says, after several lost rewatches, this is the first time I've thought about how bad the Marshall's plan was for apprehending Kate in Australia. He was by himself in plain sight and essentially cornered her while she was still driving in the car with the farmer, with the peach man. How did he not foresee the danger he was putting the farmer in with this scenario? At least wait until she gets out of the farmer's car at their destination and not for nothing, Mike, uh, the peach man, Ray Mullen, was saying, do you want to go get a burger? Like, we you go park the car at this burger place? And how? why does the marshals just decide, like, maybe I should just, like, pull up next to her? Like, could he not resist the finger gun? Did he just have to go full douche at this point? He was planning that finger gun the entire whatever hour flight to Australia. Like, okay, I'm finally going to get her. I mean, I think Kate is his white whale a little bit, and I think it made him a little crazy. So I wonder if he, like, had her... Literally, he was in her rearview mirror, and he decided, all right, no, I got, I got to pump up the gas. I got to get this going. Mullen be damn. Uh, the $23,000 can go to his estate or the, the peaches that he leaves behind. I'm going to grab her right now. Yeah. Frederick Lane as the marshal, uh, I, I would say was perfect casting, except for the fact that, uh, and, and many people don't know this, that the marshal was originally supposed to be played by Forrest Whitaker, uh, <laughs> which I think would have, would have, I think that really would have killed uh, but other than that, Frederick Lane's a pretty good second choice uh, behind uh, Forrest Whitaker, I would say. Uh, other number five, uh, this is from Steve from San Jose, who says, I always thought it was weird that Jack tells Hurley that the Kate mugshot is none of his business. And then later, when Kate is suggesting euthanizing the marshal, Jack is so upset and he tells her, I saw your mugshot, Kate. I am not a murderer. So it's like, do you care that she's a criminal or do you not care that she's a criminal, Jack? Yeah, this is what I was talking about before, where I feel like when Jack was talking with Hurley, I feel like he was in denial. I feel like he was trying to be a good person in the beginning of like, I know this secret, but it, 
it's not going to affect the way I feel about her. No, not at all. She's 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 off to do what she wants to do. She's not a criminal on this island. But then I feel like the reality of the situation has slowly crept in. Especially the more that Kate's been gone, doesn't help that he did the he did the anything else prompt, and she didn't necessarily provide the response that he wanted. So I feel like the I'm not a murderer thing was really everything boiling to the surface uh, that had been simmering for you know the first half of the episode. All right. Daniel Brennan writes in with some critiques of Tabula Rasa. He writes in and says, I want to preface my thoughts about Tabula Rasa by saying that I was more excited for this episode than I typically would be after watching the pilot. I wholeheartedly agreed that Kate deserved the MVP honors and felt it was fitting that Kate received the first flashback. With that said, I felt let down by the episode, especially the writer's handling of Kate. She seemingly has no agency throughout the entire episode. First, the group around the campfire foists the gun onto Kate. Foisted. Then she gets attacked by the marshal, and Jack reveals that he knows about her past before she's able to tell him herself. Next, Sawyer convinces her to give him the gun, which almost ends disastrously. And finally, and most egregiously to me, Jack dictates Kate's identity on the island by preventing her from telling him what she did. To be fair, it's a nice gesture. Jack recognizes that Kate is a good person and a valuable member of the island community, regardless of her past. But wouldn't it have been more powerful if Kate got to make that argument? Why couldn't she be the one to say that everyone on the island deserves a blank slate? Or why couldn't she just successfully have told Jack what she did and have Jack accept her anyway? All in all, I found Kate's passiveness throughout the episode jarring after her introduction in the pilot. And sadly, I think we already have some evidence of the narrative failing Kate. Uh, I think that those are some very fair points from Daniel Brennan. And just to add to that, I do think that like some of the idea that Kate was going to be the main character and Jack was going to get killed off early, I think probably a lot of those intentions for what was going to happen to Kate wind up going to the Jack character. And I think that they're left with like, well, I don't know exactly what we're going to do with Kate. She's a blank slate. Yeah, yeah, and, I, and I, I, they're not really sure what to do with that. Yeah, the, the final scene point I, I really take as well, and I feel like from a practical perspective, it was, it was the writers being like, oh, we don't know what she did yet, so let's just give ourselves a couple of flashback episodes to figure it out. But I do agree that, you know, you were talking about Locke versus Jack in terms of providing that blank slate. I think Jack is a little more selfish. He doesn't necessarily give Kate the opportunity basically, like, you know what, I, I don't care. I don't care what you did, which is nice on one hand, but on the other hand, you're almost denying her the opportunity to say that she did what she did, which might have been a huge guilt reliever on her part. All right. Other number seven. This is coming to us from Jonathan Krauss once again. A lot of great feedback from Jonathan Krauss this week. Uh, writes in and says, Sawyer and Jack have a great conversation in the fuselage where the B-O-D-Y-S are about how Jack is still in civilization and Sawyer's in the wild. This is obviously a theme of the episode, but I think it's a larger theme of season one as a whole. Before the show becomes good versus evil or science versus faith, it's really a show about people trying to cling to their old lives, people like Jack and Shannon, and people trying to let go and embrace the island life like Locke and season one. Charlie. Uh, yes, I agree. I would entertain it further, but we are really, really yeah. pressed for time. So uh, we're just going to move on because Jonathan Krauss actually has uh, other number eight. Uh, and this is this is wonderful. Jonathan Krauss also notes that when Michael is looking for Vincent and runs into sun bathing, sunbathing, he's <laughs> muttering to himself about how he's wandering alone in the haunted damn jungle, which is a funny line and one that Harold Perrineau delivers very well. But it also leads to a great bit of narrative harmony when five seasons later, we're going to find out that the jungle literally is haunted by the spirits of people who died on the island. And guess who's the person who reveals this bit of information? Ghost Michael. Uh, Mike Bloom, that is something that I had never connected before, and I love it. I, oh am, a, I am here for it. I just That's thought haunted damn jungle was just a fun turn of phrase. He was taking a bit of a, taking the ball from Hurley in terms of fun vernacular. But yeah, I do love that connection. I know you said you have 
come to peace with the whispers. I'm sure we'll drudge it up once again once the actual twist comes up later on in the show. But I I do love that what I think is just a completely uh, coincidental connection, but still fun nonetheless, considering the person who has been ascribing the haunted damn jungle. Other number nine coming to us from Dallin Cervo, who says, why end the episode on such a sinister note with the pan onto John Locke and the music fading? We find out in the very next episode that he's not very sinister-like at all, so why such a cold ending? Um, I mean, I do think he's kind of sinister, <laughs> and I love John Locke, but I do think that there's this ominous quality to John Locke that even Walkabout is not exactly going to wipe clean. You're going to get the impression after Walkabout that this is a man to, to whom a miracle occurred. Um, but that doesn't mean that he's not uh, also simultaneously the creepy guy with all the knives. Well, I do wonder as well if it's a thing where they're sort of looking for a pop to end each episode with. And so while they were ending with this happy montage, they're like, and Locke's creepy. I will also note that we usually get like the big reveal cut to black logo. This one faded to black and then the logo popped up, which feels like a, a rarity. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, other number 10 coming our way from Nate Meyer, uh, which I think <laughs> this is great. In honor of Saeed's line, if only we were all wearing license plates. I am wondering what are some of the vanity plates your favorite characters would have had before the crash? I think Jack would have had something boring and matter of fact like Doctor. Um, all right, so let's let's pick a few. Charlie would have had some sort of dumb drive shaft. Yeah, uh, vanity it, would, it would have been like, like U-A-L-L and then like the abbreviation for everybody. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or, or it'd be or, like a ass of bass or something. <laughs> That'd be great. Uh, Sawyer, I think uh, Con Man uh, writes itself pretty well with a with a zero for the O and a four for the A. Ooh, Con yeah, Man. I like that. Uh, Hurley's would be, I don't know. I feel like Hurley's like- Hurley's are the numbers. Yeah, well, he just well, has Hurley's the numbers. Hurley's would like <laughs> fall off his car and he'd get arrested for it, just considering his luck. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I I think Kate is not trying to get a custom license plate. She doesn't want to be. Nice. Yeah, I think vanity license uh, plate is the main thing that draws you. But I guess Edward Mars would be like, uh, I don't know, like after Austin. Yeah, I was going to say that Vincent's vanity uh, license plate was going to be woof woof, uh, but it's actually uh, probably you are everybody yeah. to match with uh, with Charlie. Or does uh, anyone else hear that whistle? Yeah, <laughs> just me. Uh, let's go to to other number twelve uh, or other another another uh, other number eleven rather. Uh, and this is this was a conversation that happened between you and Jessica Lees on Twitter uh, following uh, our conversation about the pilot. Jessica Lees really hang uh, held on to the fact that we talked about uh, Sawyer's fashion, the long sleeve t shirt combo, and she wrote to you and said. You know who rocked the long sleeve T-shirt under another T-shirt look constantly for like a decade and a half? Sheldon Cooper, uh, of course, of the Big Bang Theory. And Mike, you posited that Lost should reboot as Young Sawyer, uh, <laughs> to which Jessica Lee said that a 10-year-old James Ford starting to learn the art of the grift is something that she is very much here for. And now let me posit this. Uh, he's not quite 10 years old, but he is a very young man. And he's maybe a little more available now than he previously was. Uh, outgoing Marvel Cinematic Universe Spider-Man Tom Holland, Mike, has recently stated, and the Lost fans tweeted this out, that Lost is his all-time favorite show. What do you think about Young Sawyer starring Tom Holland? If Forrest Whitaker isn't available, he's a shoe in <laughs> 
right. Leave it there. We got to keep moving. Uh, other number 12. Uh, let's talk about missing pieces in action. This is from Eric D. Eric writes in and says, my question is, what are you guys planning to do about the missing pieces mini episodes? I believe that they were released between seasons three and four. So perhaps you'll cover them in a bonus episode once you get to that point. As I recall, some of them were pretty interesting and are included on the season four DVD. Uh, gonna go ahead and file that under. We will cross that bridge <laughs> when we get there, but we will find a way to make that work for sure. Uh, other number 13, Mike, uh, a lot of people noting uh, how this episode uh, really made them realize how much TV has changed. Like Tori, who wrote and said, your podcast intro inspired me to do a Lost Rewatch courtesy of Amazon Prime Canada. I'm on episode seven of the first season. I thought I would casually glance at how many episodes I have left. And there's 25 episodes in season one. Can you talk about the difference between 2019 when people devour six or 10 episode series versus 2004 when 22 to 25 episodes were the norm? Um, network shows are still doing yep. this, Mike. Yeah, there's a lot. There's um, a lot of uh, comedies that are broadcast pretty much from September to May. The pretty conventional schedule. I think even something like Grey's Anatomy is along the lines as well. And Lost was a network drama. I feel like once we started getting into the HBOs and the AMC's and the Netflixes of it all, that we started to move away from that model. But yeah, I would say this model continued for maybe another four or five years after Lost premiered. So while it might be absolutely crazy nowadays that everything you know lives on a streaming platform in some way, shape, or form, this was very normal, even up until, I'd say, 10 years ago. Yeah, and I, I would say that one of the shifts, like the big shift is that the, like the quality content, that's coming from the places that are doing fewer episodes. Uh, like the, the network drama that is doing a season that is like 22-ish episodes long, uh, and delivering like quality content, very few and far between to my mind right now. Um, not completely non-existent, but uh, few and far between. Can't say I'm a manifest guy uh, personally, but I know that some people uh, may disagree. Uh, other number 14, uh, speaking of credit where credit is due, the music cue. Uh, we missed something last week when we were talking about behind the scenes on the plane crash uh, that we want to make sure that we correct this week, uh, last week, when we talked about the creation of the crash site, uh, it's in fact the you know the cost of the plane and the shipping. All that information only came to light as early as a couple of weeks ago when the Hatch, a lost podcast by Rosie Murphy and Sammy Roth, Sammy interviewed Gene Higgins on the Hatch podcast. Gene remembered the numbers 15 years later without a second's hesitation, which is fun. Uh, and the Hatch is currently working through season three of that podcast. They're going through interviews with key production staff and actors. They're always bringing interesting new information to light. So that's really worth checking out if you're enjoying all of the lost trucking that we are doing right now. Um, so other number 15, Mike, just a bunch of thank yous that we are, we'll, we'll do fairly quickly. There, there are people who are, who are counting stuff as we're going. Felipe Shimon has an amazing page tracking our MVP and LVP points, uh, with a very colorful chart. That's wonderful that we are going to get into, uh, in just a moment here. Dallin Servo is still doing the dudes work, uh, and counting the dudes, uh, in Tabula Rasa. We got four more dudes from Hurley. We are now at a total of nine dudes. Whoa. John... Jonathan Krause has started an amputee count. We are currently at one. <laughs> one person and one arm. One person and one arm. We got a really touching letter uh, from John Franklin uh, that I would like to read here really quickly. Uh, John Franklin wrote in and said, it was really great hearing you talk about how rewatching Lost helped you heal after the death of your cat. I really felt what you meant. I unexpectedly lost my dad a year ago this Friday. It was and still is an incredibly hard and traumatic experience. 
Shortly afterward, I returned to Duke for my senior year of college. And yes, I do know Keith Sowell from The Edge of Extinction, <laughs> uh, which is great. I would like to talk more about that, John. Uh, on, my John. dad and I... My dad and I have been Survivor superfans since Borneo and RHAP listeners for many years. Last fall, Survivor and the RHAP podcasts were incredibly cathartic for me. Uh, in addition, my best friend and I, totally unrelated to the death of my father, started watching Lost. It was my fourth time through the series and his first. I wasn't expecting it, but Lost helped me heal in ways I didn't even know I needed. Unlike all the best cowboys on the island, my father was incredible and we had a really close relationship. So much of Lost is dealing with parents and children, loss and healing, moving on and remembering. And I never knew my favorite TV show could possibly become better and more meaningful to me than it already was. And here we are. I can't wait to go back through the series with Josh and Mike as I get more incredible content from two of my favorite RHAP hosts, get more time to spend with the survivors of Oceanic 815, and continue the ongoing process of healing and remembering my father. Uh, that's from John Franklin. And John uh lifting lifting my my glass of jart of jar teaches in in honor of your father and thank you so much for sharing that with us and uh for everybody else who's shared similar sentiments it it really means the world to me seriously we are stunned by the amount of feedback and positive words we received so far it really does mean the world to us and john i'm I'm so so sorry for your loss and we are both so happy to serve as sort of any form of comfort or at least an excuse to revisit this absolutely beautiful show. So we're, we're happy we have you along for the ride. All right. And also, uh, Amy LaRue, shout out to Amy LaRue, who made a donation to Furry Friends Refuge in, uh, in West Des Moines uh, in honor of Pardo the Cat, the late, great Leopardo DiCaccio. People who are donating uh, to, to causes on, on behalf of things that they heard in Down the Hatch is really freaking moving. So uh, just again, a, a, another huge thank you to everybody who's listening to this podcast and, and making it already just through the first few weeks so freaking fulfilling to Mike and I. All right. Let's move on, Josh. We've got points to fill out. All right, we've got points to fill out. We're at the 23 points section where we give out points to the MVPs and the LVPs of each week. Coming into Tabula Rasa, this is the score. Kate is our board leader with two points. Uh, Tied behind her, Jack, Saeed, and the Monster all have a point each. And after that, Sawyer, Seth Norris, a.k.a. the brother of Chuck Norris and John Norris, Boone, Shannon, and Michael all have negative one. Mike, we've got four minutes before we hit the 108-minute mark. Uh, We got to do this quickly. Uh, So I'm going to... I get three MVP points this week. You've got two MVP points. I will start. Uh, Kate Austin, I am going to give... Two of my MVP points wow. to Kate Austin because she is uh, she deserves them. I want to keep her in the lead. I love Evangeline Lilly. You're not going to stop. All right. I'm going to give one point to Jack. I feel like okay. even though he does some jerkish stuff this episode, the fact that he had to actually kill someone in cold blood shows a big wake-up call for what he has to do and for what the show is going to provide as well in terms of stakes. So my heart does go out to him there, even if the bullet missed it. Okay, uh, who's your other MVP point? I'm going to give an MVP point to... I'm going between a couple, but you know what? We're never going to... Make a choice! We're never going to see him again. (laughs) Give it to the Peach Man! Oh, the Peach... (laughs) He was was so kind to Kate. I understand why he did what he did. He's a complicated man, and look, he's just trying to live his best life, and it seemed like he really did care for Kate, even though he ultimately sold her out, and I'm sure hopefully he went on to always remember her, uh, especially after she she saved his life, so I'm going to give it to this guy, considering he's a... he's. This is just going to be the, the swath of what we do with MVPs and LVPs. Could be long-time yes. characters, could be one-time, one-timers. 
All right, Saeed will get my uh, my third and final MVP point because he is the one who is actually telling these people how to survive and coming up with action plans. So just in terms of value, uh, it does not get more valuable than that. Mike, you have three LVP points to dish out, and I have two. I will hand the wheel over to you before we uh, risk the wheel. Do it fast! I know we have some Boone defenders out there, but I gotta give it to him again this week. Majorly for him trying to go gung-ho and taking the gun while everyone is sleeping. I know he got his idea shot down among Team Transceiver of telling everyone the truth, but the fact of the matter is, he should have just presented the idea of, hey, I'll watch guard, can I have the gun? I feel Mike, we've got two minutes. It's self-explanatory why Boone gets minus one. Keep going. Uh, I'll give another one to Michael. He had a bit of a doofy week once more, and walking in on somebody naked is not a good look, dude. <laughs> okay, minus one for Michael. And one more. You've got one more LVP point to dish I'm out. I'm sorry, Sawyer, buddy. I know you soften up later, but the fact that you failed so badly at killing a guy after proclaiming yourself such a badass makes you an LVP in my book. I also have to knock Sawyer a point for that. Uh, it's just no good. Uh, and then I have to take a point away from the marshal for dying. Uh, <laughs> wow! As is, as, as is becoming... Uh, and also, you know what? He, he screwed up the, the, the apprehension of Kate. Uh, he made it much more dangerous than it needed to be. So I'm going to take away a point from the marshal. Okay, so that's two MVP points for Kate, an MVP point for Jack, an MVP point for Saeed. The peach man, Ray Mullen, gets, a, gets an MVP point as well. Sawyer gets docked. Two points. Boone loses a point. Michael loses a point. The Marshal loses a point. Check out Felipe Shimon on Twitter. We will retweet him, and he is going to point us to uh, the the official chart for where we stand on the MVP, LVP stuff. And that's going to do it. Uh, We have to do an episode ranking really quickly. The pilot is still better than Tabula Rasa. Pilot over Tabula Rasa. We're fine. We're good there. Hmm, let me think on this one. No, Mike! What are you trying to do? Are we actively trying to sabotage this thing? We've got 30 seconds left. What is your problem? Why would you do this? We were so close to... Wait, is me ranting and raving? Am I the... Oh, my God. It's going to be my fault. I'm the reason why we're going to have to push the button. Oh, God. I can't believe it. We're going to have to owe a, bu- a bonus podcast Our after Tabula Rasa. Oh, God. I mean, just run the clock at this point. Yeah. In fi- in five seconds, four, three, two, one. Podcast failure. Podcast failure. Wiggler failure. Mike Bloom failure. You have triggered podcast crisis, electromagnetic crisis. You have been too indecisive. Now you must make sacrifices. You have triggered podcast crisis, 108 minute crisis. You spent too much time on the island. Now you owe us something priceless. You have triggered podcast crisis, scary black smoke monster crisis. There's no false safe key that's hiding. This podcast should have ended by now. You owe us another podcast, brother. Letting the podcast. Uh, oh no! I, I okay. think we've uh, very we very quickly realized that maybe an upper time limit was not good for the two of us. No, no. Well, look. All right. So this was going to happen. Uh, it became pretty clear to me, uh, frankly, by the time we got to the sounds, it's like, oh god, this is going to happen. <laughs> uh, I, I'd like to I'd like to posit uh, an an amendment for a rule change uh, for the future, which is the 108 minute counter does not begin until we start in officially on four stories. 
because uh, sometimes we got to get some like business off the top. We've got the cold open that takes a little while. We typically don't start like actually talking about the episode until like maybe close to 10 minutes into the episode. And I think the 108 minutes should start there and it should end by the time we get into 23 points. Uh, that's the hope. By the time we're done with, tw- by the time we're done with twenty three, that's the hope. So we we shall see if we can keep ourselves to a tighter timeline. But Josh, for now, the podcast failure did get triggered. All right, the podcast failure did get triggered. We now officially owe you a bonus lost <gasps> podcast down the hatch after Tabula Rasta. After our second episode. <laughs> After Tabula Ross, there we go. That's a, a that's, bonus. That's how I know a how, bonus how angry podcast. you are is when you, you use the wrong pronunciation. Uh, all right. Well, here's the good news. Uh, Mike and I anticipated that this might happen. Uh, we have uh, we have plotted out the official first iteration of the Frozen Donkey Wheel, which I am prepared to spin right now. So just to establish what's going to happen here. So if we exceed 108 minutes of the podcast. We owe you a bonus podcast. We have exceeded the 108 minutes. We owe you a bonus podcast. And that means we are going to spin the frozen donkey wheel to completely rip off uh, Robin Akiva and throw a little bit of a lost wrinkle into it. We will spin a frozen donkey wheel that has eight spokes on the wheel. And there are eight possible places that we can land on with the wheel. And depending on the podcast we land on, maybe we'll be able to cough up a podcast really soon. It may take us a little while because some of these are a little more elaborate than others but let's just list off uh this and and to repeat it's the first iteration of the wheel uh the wheel we're gonna you know as as we land on these options they're going to come off the wheel and they will not be replaced until we have whittled down the wheel (laughs) all the way to a nice little dog whistle uh for for vincent the dog to to come onto the podcast uh so once we are finished going through all of these different bonus podcast options we will reset. We'll reassess what worked, what did not work. Uh, we will accept your feedback. We're going to be doing down the hatch for a very long time. And if this is any signal, we are going to be giving you a lot of bonus content along the way. All right. So, Mike, this is what you and I came up with. You ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, spoke number one on the wheel is special. Uh, special means that a special guest star is going to come onto the show. They are going to have a very specific topic about Lost to talk us through. Uh, so that is spoke number one. We will get a special guest star in the house. Spoke number two is uh, walkabout. Uh, if you listen yes. to our Stranger Things podcast, Josh and I were able to do a bit of extracurricular RPG elements uh, led by the great R. Philly. We uh, actually did some role playing of characters inside the Stranger Things universe. And we might be doing something. If the wheel lands on the spoke, we will be doing something similar on the island. We'll be essentially be doing our own version of expose, Josh. We're gonna just like fanfic the hell out of Lost. Like we're gonna we're gonna build out our own little Lost mythology on the island, and is gonna be a very goofy, ridiculous podcast that everybody will uh, either enjoy or loathe, depending on uh, your interest in such larks. Uh, so that's spoke number two. Spoke number three is orientation, in which Mike and I, plus a guest, if we can get a guest, we're gonna report back on additional reading or viewing that is inspired by or directly comes from Lost. So if we're gonna do a bad twin book report. This may be where that comes in. If we are going to go and check out the pilot of Alcatraz to see what our bur- uh, our buddy Jorge Garcia was getting into for that. Uh, if we're going to go check out Colony for a minute, uh, then that's what we'll we'll do to check in on Josh Holloway. Uh, that is the orientation option. Spoke four is skip. There's no lost pun in here. We just spin again. 
<laughs> yeah, much like how the frozen donkey wheel sometimes gets off the rails and skips and people uh, are traveling throughout time. This is the skip uh, option that if we if we hit if we hit number four, if we hit the fourth spoke, then we have to respin the wheel. So that's two wheel spins in one shot. So that's that's very terrifying. We are hoping that that is uh, because I, I, I only want to spin it once. Yes. I don't want to have to, I don't want to have to spin it twice. My my heart's already going to be in my throat for uh, for the first spin. Um, spoke number five is the Lindelof. This is a parody song competition. It's the lost equivalent of the Wandoff. And this is the one where I will really stress that if we land on five, then the Lindelof is a guaranteed thing. It's going to happen. It will be real, but it may take some time to come together because we need to make sure we've got the top quality songs and all the artists who want to contribute to that. Uh, we've got some hat designing that we'll have to do for that. Uh, so the Lindelof, if we land on five today, you're definitely not getting it next week. And we will announce the details for when you will get that. Option number six, another bit of a miscellaneous one. Push execute. Uh, this is basically our get out of jail free card. <laughs> yes. Where Josh and I are just going to push the button. Nothing catastrophic is going to happen. We're going to move on with our days. Yes. If we land on spoke number six and we push execute, then we have pushed the button and we have avoided having to do a bonus podcast, which honestly, right now, my fingers are crossed that we land on six. I would love to just not have to worry about this so immediately, uh, but that is why I think that we will not push execute. So some of you may consider it a cheat, uh, to which I say, yes, Mm -hmm. it's absolutely Mm -hmm. a cheat. Uh, But uh, what are you going to do? All right, spoke number seven, the question mark, Uh, much like the the name of the second Mr. Echo-centric episode from season two. This is a mystery podcast that will remain uncovered, Jeff Probst auction style, until the podcast itself drops. We're not going to tell you what it is until we trigger the option and until we reveal it to you. Uh, I will say that Mike and I currently have something slotted in the question mark option that's going to expire before the end of September. So if we finish out September and we have not triggered the question mark, we're going to have to regroup and come up with another thing uh, because what we have in mind is only lightly lost related. It is actually much more about a different show Mm -hmm. uh, and it will require enough of a commitment that if we land on the question mark, uh, b- by the time that we would trigger this specific idea, we will suspend the 108-minute rule until the question mark has completely played out. So to, just to add some intrigue to the mix of what we are planning there. Oh, boy. Well, hoping that happens so that we can do a... I actually want that. Yeah. I want that. I, I would be very happy if we landed on the question mark because I think we've got a really fun idea for some, uh, some, some new regular coverage that we would be doing on post-show recaps, uh, and also it would make me just sweat a little less about the uh, about the frozen donkey wheel for the next little while. And finally, follow the leader, which essentially is a dealer's choice. Josh and I are going to put our heads together and say, okay, of these seven options, which one do we want to do? We are taking fate out of chance's hands and actually, you know, picking the option ourselves. Yeah, so if we, if we land on follow the leader, Mike and I can pick any of the options that are on the frozen donkey. Well, obviously we can't pick skip. We can't just spin again. And we're going to be fair. We're not going to be cheesy here. We will not push execute. If we if we land on eight, if we land on follow the leader, we will pick either the special option, the walkabout option, the orientation option, the Lindelof, or the question mark. Uh, so one of five is what we will uh, what we will go with there. Um, okay, Mike. I have uh, I have Googled an eight sided die. <laughs> Uh, that I will that I will roll and it will represent the frozen donkey wheel. 
and we will choose which option we will do for the first bonus podcast that we owe to the How listeners are we already doing of this? Down the Hatch. I don't know, man. All right. So Spoke 1, just to reset, Spoke 1 is special. Spoke 2 is Walkabout. That's the RPG. Spoke 3 is Orientation. That's the additional uh, extracurricular reading or viewing. Spoke 4, we will skip. Spoke 5 is the Lindelof. Spoke 6, we push the button and crisis averted. Uh, spoke 7 is the question mark. And Spoke 8 is follow the leader. Uh, Mike, any last words before I spin the wheel? Um, just blow on those dice beforehand. Okay, here we go. We have landed on spoke number two, the walkabout. <laughs> the Lost RPG is, is, is the first bonus podcast that we owe to listeners of Down the Hatch. And I, you know what, Mike? I think that this is great. This is exciting. Uh, we get to embark on our first journey through the jungle very early on in the run of Lost. I'm sure that over the course of Down the Hatch, we are going to have many role-playing adventures here along the way. And to just kick things off very early, time so close to the time that Oceanic crashed onto the beach, uh, couldn't have, couldn't have uh, asked for a better result. Yeah. Except maybe the question mark. Oh, question it's mark also a little fun. bit like, uh, you know... Uh, parallel to the lost stuff as well we're gonna bring our philly back in we had so much fun with the stranger things one so i can imagine the lost one might even top that in terms of just all the insanity that we're going to bring to the island so that's probably another one that depending on schedules might take a little bit of time to come out but regardless i'm very excited to uh, get back to that with whatever characters we create yeah i think we will be able to get that out in the next couple of weeks i think uh two weeks maximum i think we will be able to to get you our walk about very excited about that and actually. I, I think that this is and great. actually it's very pertinent considering our next episode yeah that's true okay so the next episode that we are doing here on the proper rewatch on down the hatch it is walkabout it's dropping on september 6th we're going to need your feedback by no later than the morning of september 4th uh, and maybe Mike and I will even be able to talk a little bit about uh, some recent walkabouts of our mm-hmm. own, uh, some, re- some recent adventures that, that Mike and I have, uh, have been on. So I think that that's going to be a great podcast. We're talking about the first ever John Locke episode, which many consider to be top tier, top five baby even lost. Uh, will that be the case for us? Looking forward to relitigating. Yeah. I mean, uh, this, was, this was that moment where I think, you know, Tabula Rasa was good, but I think Walkabout was this moment where people said, okay, Lost is not just a flash in the pan that had an awesome pilot. This show yeah. is fantastically done, and I'm very excited to see, does it hold up? How do we examine the character of John Locke and that revelation, knowing everything we know about him both before during and after the island i'm sure there's gonna be a lot of other miscellaneous stuff going on after the death of edward mars it's sure to be a fun time okay so we've got walkabout coming your way next we want your feedback down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com is our email address you could also subscribe to the podcast down the hatch the lost rewatch podcast on your podcast app of choice your ratings your reviews would be greatly appreciated. You can tweet at us as well. Tweet at Posha Recaps is our Twitter account. I am at Round Howard. Uh, Mike is at a Mike Bloom type. Uh, and I think with that, we've we've obviously we've yammered on long enough today, so as to trigger our first electromagnetic crisis. But I'm actually really excited about it because I think that the walkabout RPG timed with the walkabout recap is going to be wonderful. And since we have spent so much time here already anyway, we don't have to worry about running the clock to its detriment, to its final uh, crisis point, so we can actually play you out with a little something purdy 
uh, to tide you over until our next recap. So we'll be talking to you again very soon with our walkabout recap. Take care, everybody. Goodbye. No house and love, but not today. They're gonna wash away. They're gonna wash away. Friends of but not today. Say don't wash away. Say don't wash away.